Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Yeah, you know, we're kind of in that stage right now where we're a few weeks out, right? And all you hear from some of these teams who are looking for a guy uh, like Vladimir Tarasenko, they're saying they don't want to give up their first-round draft pick. Well, that's who does? Like, that's pretty common, you know, to hear a team come out and say that we don't want to give up those top draft picks. But listen, if you want a guy like Tarasenko and you're the New York Rangers, you're probably going to have to give up a first or, if not a first, a second-round draft pick or one of your top-level prospects. I think just that's what it's going to have to come to. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. That was Jeremy Rutherford yesterday on the show. We are jam-packed today on the show. We've got Anthony Recker of MLB Network coming up at 11.15. we got Craig Button of TSN at 11.30. we got Jason Stark of The Athletic and MLB Network coming up at noon. And Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, at 1.30. So, plenty to get into today. Let's start it off with... Vladimir Tarasenko. Alex, the aforementioned Jeremy Rutherford had a great piece earlier today over on The Athletic on whether or not Vladimir Tarasenko makes sense for the New York Rangers. Long story short, the answer is yes. He makes a lot of sense for the Rangers. They have a hole on the top line at right wing. Vladimir Tarasenko is a legitimate top line right winger for all of his faults. He still fits that criteria. The question, though, is would the Rangers be willing to give up what he is going to cost? And that includes both money and also capital, draft picks, prospects, whatever you want to go with. I think that what this could end up coming down to, Alex, is the Blues are going to want a first-round pick and a prospect. That's been the price for a player like Vladimir Tarasenko for many years now. The Rangers are probably going to say, yeah, we don't want to pay a first-round pick. Because, of course, who wants to pay a first-round pick for a player? But what if we'll give you a second and a prospect? Alex, if you're in Doug Armstrong's shoes, you're trying to get the best return possible for your pending UFAs. Are you accepting less than a first-round pick for Vladdy? Or is the first-round pick the top priority in return for Vladimir Tarasenko? I would accept less than a first-round pick if I'm Doug Armstrong, if I'm getting a better prospect. And honestly, if it's less than a first-round pick, I might look at a team like the New York Rangers and say, don't worry about the second-round pick. Give me this prospect. Because it's an either-or situation if you're Doug. Because a first-round pick means you're either going to draft something or you're going to find a way to attach that in some type of trade in the offseason. But if you get a prospect, you're saying, this player we feel like can help us in the next couple of years so that's why it's an either or. I, as much as people comp the Claude Giroux last season, I just don't think you're going to get either trade package for one of the guys that you're offering up in Tarasenko and O'Reilly. O'Reilly because of the injury and Vladimir Tarasenko, frankly, has just been because he hasn't performed to that level to garner something like that for you. So if it's me and I'm just using the New York Rangers as an example here, 
I'm going to be asking for two different prospects. There's a, a guy named Brennan Ottman, who I might be mispronouncing. Um, he's a forward, probably their best prospect. And there's a six foot four defenseman named Matthew Robertson that I'm asking for that apparently a lot of people in the New York Rangers side of things think he's the most NHL ready. If you're not going to give me a first round pick, then you're going to give me one of those prospects. And if not, then I'm moving on to another team. I would agree. Tanner wasn't listening. No, I'm going to um, be total. I'm, I'm going to uh, full disclosure. He wasn't listening to anything that was uh, just you said. Pulled an old Ferrari. I'll go ahead huh? and continue. Uh, in my defense, I'm working on something for us for today's show. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know. My bad. Well, uh, don't leave it to BK to throw you under yeah, the bus. Yeah, I, yeah, I felt that bump. Oh, <laughs> um, hold on. He's putting it in reverse. Let, Whoa, bump. let me argue the other side for a moment. The reason why I think that I would be willing to accept no prospects. Like, right off all of the prospects capital, but give me that first round pick is for this reason. Alex, you've been telling us for a while now, this is a really good draft. People like this draft. It's considered to be pretty deep, and at the front end, it's got a potential generational player in Connor Bedard. If you are able to get that first round pick, it's not just the potential of the Blues going out there and picking their player that they want with wherever it is. Let's say it's the 20th overall pick that they end up getting from the Rangers. It's not just that you get the 20. It's what you can do with that pick. It's what you can then flip that pick for because that pick has more value. We know how this works, right? Draft picks are like new cars. You walk them off the lot and the moment that you drive them out of there, it loses like half of its value for you. A draft pick has value because any team can take their particular player that they like with that pick. And no two teams like the same players the same way. So maybe the Rangers would pick one player with 20th overall pick. The Blues may pick somebody entirely different, and maybe the Blue Jackets would pick a third player with that selection. Reason why I bring that up is because you could then flip that pick for a player, an NHL-ready player, or you could flip that pick with a current player on your roster that you don't want their contract on your books anymore and get maybe it's a prospect in return or something like that. That pick holds more value in my opinion for what the blues are looking to do this offseason it opens up more flexibility than getting some middle of the pack prospect would give me so i would prioritize the first round pick and not worry so much about the prospects that are coming back unless that prospect is like the main prize in that package in which case i guess maybe it's different doesn't seem like the rangers have that guy though in their system yeah i i would be prioritizing the first round pick but it it, it kind of comes to me of okay have you already moved ryan o'reilly and if so did you get a first round pick there because i do think at the deadline you need to get one first round pick at a minimum if you get a first round pick and say o'reilly's dealt first then that that's okay so i will go ahead and focus on getting some whatever the best is in vladdy because i think vladdy's value could get hampered down in the terms of the price you're going to get back from because he has the no trade clause and the rangers can kind of hold you hostage in terms of what they're willing to give away so i, I think you have to get a minimum first round pick in this deadline if you don't get it in a ryan o'reilly deal then yes that has to be what the top priority is in the rangers deal if they're the team that trades for vladdy the reason i'm going prospect here specifically is because it's the rangers and they have a couple players that would make sense for the blues but let's just say it's any team if i'm going to get a prospect doug armstrong's getting a prospect that's going to impact the team next season he's not going to get a guy who's three years away and that's why as much as a first round pick would be great to attach to some type of player to trade away do we believe doug's actually going to trade that player and will a team take that like if it's a tory krug or a colton pareko or justin falk which i'm imagining is the three players that come to mind when you talk about this 
is a first round pick going to be enough for a team to say, yeah, we'll take on six and a half million dollars for the next four, five, six, seven years. I mean, Tory Krug might have value by himself. Right he now. might. He might. Same thing for Falk. I think the big question there, like with Pareko, given the seven years that remain, I have no idea it's, how other teams would value It's just that. such a risk to get into it in the offseason because then you sit there and say, well, now we got these assets to try and spin and find a way to get one of these contracts off the book, but then a team's going to ask for more because they know you're searching for it. And you might walk away from this trade deadline looking like, I mean, looking like a king if you're Doug Armstrong, because if you are selling off all of these pieces, uh, you're going to get a first round pick for one of Ryan O'Reilly or Vladimir Tarasenko. You're going to get some type of prospect. If you're not getting a first round pick for the other, you're going to get a second round pick for Barbashev, and then you'll probably get third, fourth, fifths for a guy like Anola Chari. And if you decide to go elsewhere, you're going to have a ton of picks in this draft. Yep. That's why if I can isolate a couple of prospects, if it's the Rangers and say, this guy makes sense for us. And again, there's two guys, Matthew Robertson, an NHL defenseman, probably ready to play next year. Six foot four could play there. Or this uh, Brennan Ottman, who's a, I mean, he had 50 goals a couple of years ago in the, in junior hockey. So those are guys that you look at and you say, they can impact my team next year. Let's see if I can get that guy. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson. And I'm Brandon Kylie. If you guys want to get involved in the show today, you can do so. 314-399-9646. We aren't typically very guest heavy on this show. Just full disclosure. Uh, it's something we, we prefer to have a lot of discussion here between the three of us. But when we've got guests like Anthony Recker and Craig Button and Jason Stark coming up over the course of the next hour, we're certainly not going to say no. Anthony Recker is our guest coming up next. Excited to talk to the former Major League Baseball catcher. Want to get his thoughts on what it would be like as a catcher himself to replace the greatness of Yadier Molina. And how does he think Wilson Contreras will fit into that mix? Talk to Anthony Recker about that coming up next. You're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. here in St. Louis in the calendar year 2023 is going to be how Wilson Contreras is able to take over for the legend that is Yadier Molina. And right now we're going out to the Brown and Crippen celebrity line to be joined by a former catcher in his own right. MLB network analyst. Now he's Anthony Recker joining us here on the show. Anthony, we appreciate the time, man. How you doing today? I'm doing well, guys. How are you? Uh, doing very well. Wanted to get your thoughts because I saw that you were on the MLB Network's uh, countdown of the top 10 catchers right now in Major League Baseball, and you guys were able to discuss uh, quite a bit where Wilson Contreras ranks on that list. I just wanted to get your thoughts more generally on what it's going to be like for a player like Wilson Contreras, who's established in his own right, but to come into St. Louis where Yadier Molina spent his entire career and became a legend here, a future Hall of Famer, what do you think that'll be like for Wilson Contreras to have to replace Yachty here? Well, it's going to be it's going to be difficult. I mean, anytime you're replacing someone with the stature of of Yachty Molina, uh, let alone the stature that Yachty has in St. Louis, I mean, it, it's not that often that you get to see a guy come up as young as he did, have as much success as he did. Um, you know, both obviously early it was defensively and leading that team calling great games, but then he, he became an offensive force and he became such an icon and such an integrated part and a fabric of what the St. Louis Cardinals organization was and they're winning year after year after year. Um, it's going to be really difficult for Contreras to step in those shoes. Uh, he's going to be counted on to be 
you know, I think more of an offensive force and less so an everyday catcher. I think they have the opportunity with uh, Knizner there. Is that how you say his name, by the way? I've never known his name. Is it, it, it's, it's, okay. So, uh, you know, it's, he's going to have an opportunity with him being there that he, he understands the staff. He knows the staff pretty well. Uh, he handles the staff well. So I don't think he has to necessarily be back there every single day, which gives him an opportunity to kind of ease into it get to know his pitchers in spring training, get to know them, obviously, with the WBC. Uh, you know, we'll see, obviously, whether or not uh, how much he's around all of those pitchers and how much he gets to speak with them. But at the same time, really get to learn them, learn that staff, and, and become a part of what they're doing there on the other side of the ball as, as far as the pitching staff and uh, managing the defense and, and handling, you know, those kinds of priorities that are really so important for a catcher. Anthony, you've been in this spot before where you've been on one team and then you joined another team the next season. What's the most difficult part for a catcher in terms of joining that new team where a lot of the guys have been around each other for multiple years? Yeah, it's, it's the learning curve. It's you got to put in the time. You have to be willing to uh, take the time, whether it's at the field, uh, get there really early, talk to the guys, be in the weight room, get in the cage, uh, you know, go out to the bullpens, be there, be active, be catching all the, as many bullpens as you can, and just keep that line of communication going uh, with your pitching staff, whether it's starters, relievers, even young guys who are going to be coming up uh, through the system and, and are going to have a chance to make an impact, whether they start with the team or not. You know, with the Cardinals, obviously, Libertor was there for a large majority of the season last year, but he could be an integral part of what they're doing this year, whether he starts up with the team or not. And, and there's a lot of pieces like that on every team. So you just have to get to know them as, as well as you can. Take them out to dinners, go out at night, you know, just kind of hang out with them, maybe go over to their house and just hang out, uh, play some video games and talk and just understand who they are, what makes them tick, how you're going to get the most out of them. Talk about their game. You do that during the bullpens. You watch them. You study them. You watch the film. And there's a lot that goes into it, and it's really just about building those relationships both on and off the field. Anthony Recker is a former Major League Baseball catcher. He's now an analyst over on MLB Network. Anthony, I was curious, just kind of your overall thoughts on Wilson Contreras as a catcher because so much has been made of his pitch framing, but defensively, at least when you look at the numbers or you watch him, you you could see – Pretty good when it comes to the pickoffs, especially behind the guys at first base. He's not terrible defensively, and he's excellent as an offensive player. What are your thoughts overall on Wilson Contreras as a catcher? Overall, I mean, look, he's a very good player. Um, Offensively, he brings a lot to a team that you're not going to find throughout all of Major League Baseball from the catcher position. You're starting to see a little bit more of it as some of these younger guys are coming up, and they're they're much more well-rounded. But, you know, Wilson brings a lot offensively. And then defensively, as you mentioned, look, he has uh, very strong parts of his game, particularly throwing the baseball. Um, You know, framing isn't necessarily considered a a huge strength of his. And, you know, talking to people, uh, I haven't heard, uh, you know, great things about his pitch calling and things like that. That doesn't mean that it's bad or that he doesn't have a great reputation. Those just haven't been necessarily relayed. And I think a lot of that comes when you are, an offensive catcher when you first show up on the scene, right? He gets there in Chicago, uh, you know, 2016, they make the run to the World Series, and he didn't really catch a lot of those games. It was other guys stepped in and and caught David Ross and others were the ones catching the game, and he was a part of that team, uh, you know, offensively. And so he kind of got that label, and it's unfair sometimes. It's unfair that you get a label just based on the fact that a part of your game may be ahead 
of another area where you want to get better. Um, and he's worked on it over the years. He's gotten better, you know, as far as pitch framing goes for the most part. And as far as, you know, calling the game, you can't go through as many seasons as he has in the big leagues without learning and understanding a lot about what's going on. It's demanded of you or you're not going to catch anymore. So it's not like the guy isn't putting in the time. It's not like he's not trying to get, you know, as good as he possibly can. It's going to be a new uh, challenge for him, you know, learning a, a brand new staff from, from A all the way down to Z, your, you know, your number one starting pitcher to your long relief guy. And, and like I said, even the guys coming for the minor leagues, learning them, what makes them tick, what they go to, how to get them right, all kinds of different things. But it's a challenge that I'm sure he's ready for. And so for me, uh, you know, when you get a guy who brings some offensive prowess, who in the coming year with the new rules is going to have to deal with probably a little bit more, uh, you know, on the base paths. There's going to be some more attempts most likely, and you're going to see uh, catchers and that part of their game is going to have to shine a little bit more. A lot of that's got to be on the, you know, onus has got to be on the pitching staff as well. We'll see how that trans, you know, translates going from a guy who like Yachty who controlled that so well, and I'm sure through his pitching staff controlled it so well, probably harped on them, look, I need you to be quick. I need you to get this, you know, slide step. Maybe some of that's even going to come from the coaching staff now. Some of those slide steps, pickoffs, maybe not as many pickoffs because you can only pick over <laughs> twice now before potential balk. Um, but it's going to be an interesting process. Um, but I have, I have all the confidence in the world to him that he's up for it and that he's going to remain, uh, you know, a, a very good catcher in this league. To me, catching is all about winning. And as long as he comes in here with this team, they have their setup to win. As long as they win some ball games and they're on the right path, uh, you know I don't see anything going wrong for him. Anthony. That's where I was going to go next because we heard the rumors in the off season of you know potentially the Cardinals going after a Sean Murphy or maybe a Danny Jansen or an Alejandro Kirk from Toronto, and they ended up being with Wilson Contreras. When you heard those other catcher names, and then Wilson Contreras's names is the one that ended up in St. Louis. Was he the best match for the Cardinals? Oh wow, um, that's a really good question. I'm, I'm not going to say yes just because I think there were, you know, and could have been some other opportunities because they have a lot of very good young ball players. So they had an opportunity to go out and make a trade if they wanted to. Now, some of those ball players, whether it's Wynn or Walker, uh, they're hoping that they're going to be, you know, a part of this big league team and making an impact. So, uh, you know, were they willing to necessarily part from one of them in order to get uh, a Sean Murphy type or, you know, one of those, uh, like you mentioned, any of the three that were in Toronto, one of them obviously went to Arizona in that Dalton Varsho trade. So were they willing to part with some of those big names, some of those young guys in order to do that? And in some cases, the answer is no. And in that case, free agency is the best way to go. And there was no better catcher on the free agent market. So from that perspective, it was certainly a, a great signing by them. You know, and I think St. Louis can look forward to him being a part of what is really a, a great um, and looking like a very deep lineup. You've, they've got left-handed, right-handed bats. I mean, they're a little bit right-handed on their, you know, when it comes to power, uh, power numbers, but they've got some really good young left-handed hitters that can provide and kind of fill some holes within that lineup. And it's, it's going to be a really nice mix. Uh, I think when you put all that together, 
Wilson Contreras is a great option for the St. Louis Cardinals. Final question that I've got for Anthony Recker of MLB Network. You mentioned that lineup, and there was a piece last week on ESPN that came out ranking the top offenses, the top lineups in Major League Baseball. They have the Cardinals all the way up at number two. When you hear like the, the top six, for example, of like Donovan, Contreras, Goldie, Arnato, O'Neill, Newt Bar, maybe you could throw in an, uh, a different player here or there, but roughly that estimate, do you think that can be a top five type of offense in Major League Baseball this year? A hundred percent. What I really love about them is kind of the, um, the variety of, of hitter that they have. First of all, you have the two in the middle who did it all year last year in Goldschmidt and Arenado. It doesn't get better than those two uh, and what they're able to bring you because they don't just bring you a high average um, power numbers. They bring you just quality at back every time they step up to the plate. But then you put in a guy like Contreras who has some pop. You know, Tyler O'Neill's looking for a bounce back year. Uh, you mentioned some of the young guys in Lars Newbar, Dylan Carlson looking for a bounce back year. Juan Yepes showed some really good promise last year. We'll see what he brings. Um, Tommy Edmond uh, potentially at the top of this lineup. You've got guys who put the ball in play, don't strike out a ton, have very good a, a very good you know approach and understanding of the strike zone. When you put that together with some guys who do have pop, um, you, you create a lineup and righty lefty switch hitters. You put together a lineup that's very difficult uh, as an opposing catcher to try and combat, to try to you know pitch to, and so to game plan for. And so I think that makes them a very and a very high quality offensive team uh, going into the season. And I expect them to be you know number two. That's lofty. Like those are lofty <laughs> yeah. expectations. But realistically, they can live up to that. It's just whether or not. Everything comes together, everyone stays healthy, and you get some of those bounce-back seasons. That's, that's really what it comes down to. The, the, the potential is there. It's whether or not it all comes together. And really that just comes down to execution, um, them coming together as a clubhouse, uh, you know, kind of their hitting plans and, you know, and the coaching staff getting together and figuring out strengths and, strength and weaknesses, trying to match that up. There's a lot of stuff that goes into today's game that didn't necessarily, even as, you know, as short as 10, 20 years ago, but it's going to be really fun to see because I think this team has that kind of opportunity. They may not have, the, they may not lead the league in home runs, but they certainly will be and and should be top five, top ten at the very least in runs scored. I would I would expect a top five when it comes down to offense. It's all about runs scored, right? Like that's all that really matters. And so I expect this team to be top five. Uh, certainly top 10 in, in run score at the end of the season. Hey, Anthony, this has been great, man. It's our first time to be able to catch up with you here on the show. Hopefully we can do this again soon as we get some actual baseball to be able to react to. Wish you all the best. Thanks for hopping on with us today, man. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, and I'm very excited for that actual baseball. Yeah, you ain't lying. <laughs> We're right there with you. That's Anthony Recker, MLB Network analyst, former Major League Baseball catcher. You can follow him on Twitter. He's at Anthony underscore Recker, R-E-C-K. E-R. Alex, I think that's one of the things that I'm most looking forward to about this lineup that we get to watch this season. There's diversity throughout. You've got guys like Tommy Edmond or um, Brendan Donovan that are more the contact hitters. You've got the power hitters littered there throughout, especially with Gorman and O'Neill specifically. You've got the high on base guys with a Lars Newtbar. You've got the all around hitters and Goldie Arenado and Contreras. You got a little bit of everything. 
And we haven't been able to say that about the Cardinals offense in recent seasons. For Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll get to questions and answers. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. But coming up next, Craig Button is one of our favorite guests that we have on regularly here on the show. Last year, he told us Zidane Ochara can't play. This year, who does he think the Blues should be targeting? What does he think that the Blues should be targeting in return for some of the their big-time players at the deadline? We'll talk to Craig Button about that coming up next here on 101 ESPN. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Count that, that big bang. One of my favorite hockey analysts in the country is Craig Button, really in the world, North America. Let's put it that way. He joins us now via the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. He is of TSN. You can follow him on Twitter at Craig J. Button. Craig, we always appreciate the time, man. How you doing today? I am good, Alex. Thanks for the nice introduction. And uh, it's always a pleasure to join you and BK. Absolutely. It's great to have you on. Uh, Craig, let's start with this. I, just overall thoughts on the blue season so far. H- how did we get here? How did we get to this team picking in the top 10 in the NHL draft right now? I like the chuckle too there, Craig. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's, you know, because we, we've watched the blues, right? We've watched the blues play so incredibly well. And then we've watched the blues play so incredibly poor. You know, injuries have had a factor in this. But I, I think all in all, when you have a team here, is a, is a team that just isn't quite good enough. You, you know, good teams don't fall into these, what, what I call these valleys. And, and, and the Blues, even when they were healthy, were falling into these valleys. And, you know, I think that it, 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 you might want to think that your team is better than that. But I think it's a really good indication that, your team isn't as good as you, as you as you as you thought it could be, and certainly you know you think back. I mean, 2019, you know, we're coming up on four years with the Stanley Cup, and it doesn't seem that long ago. But you look at the team, and you look at some different changes uh, to the roster that have been significant, and you, you know, you, you players get a little bit older, you lose some really good quality players, and and, and that's going to impact you in a way. But but I think what's clear, and, and to me it is, is that the team didn't find themselves here by accident. Okay, maybe they would be picking 11 to 14 or 11 to 15 without some of the injuries, but I don't think the team's good enough. It's not quick enough. It's not fast enough. I think on the blue line, they're not, they're not good enough to, to, you know, the team in 2019 that was so good winning the Cup, they, they just suffocated me. They, they shrunk the ice on opponents. This team, this blue line can't do that. And I think that for Doug Armstrong, you know, who I believe has always had a clear view of his team. He's had faith when he needed to faith, have faith and belief when he needed to have belief. And I think he also deals in reality. I think he understands, you know, where a team sits. And 
that there comes a point in time, and he talked about it. He talked about it in the, in, in the early in the not early in the season, but you know back in November. He said, "Hey, listen, I, I built the team. It's on me. I, I you know sometimes what you believe in doesn't come to fruition." And I don't think Doug is uh, hesitant to acknowledge that the team isn't as good as he thought he would be, or that, that it may have shown at different times. And in the same breath, I don't think he's reluctant to to, to make uh, changes uh, heading into the trade deadline that'll set team for the future Craig we you know how this goes from a fan base when a team struggles everybody wants to blame somebody you've been a general manager how much blame do you put on yourself as a GM when things like this go wrong or do you look at the players and say this is on you guys yeah so so, so I always (laughs) it's a great question and I think that one of the things that you always come up well who put the players out there Who, who put the team together and I'm a big believer that it always starts at the top. The manager is the one to put the team together. So you, 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 if, if the players aren't doing it, well, then you're the one to put them there. You're the one to put this team together. You're the one that, you know, uh, you know, orchestrated this, this group of players. So, yeah, can you say that players have underperformed and players not played up to the level? Yeah, you can say that. It's not 100% on the, on the management, right? And, again, it, it, if you're in that role as a manager and a leader, you know what? You're responsible, and therefore you're accountable. And I, I know Doug really well, and I know Doug doesn't shy away from any type of accountability, and he, he touched on it in that press conference. And I don't. And it, it can become disappointing. It can become humbling to, to realize that, you know, what you're trying to do didn't come to fruition. But smart people, and Doug's smart, will come to the realization, okay, what do we need to, to do to make sure we don't end up in this spot again? What do I need to do to be better? And, and you're having these constant conversations and, uh, with your coaching staff, with your internal uh, management group, and, and you're always looking at, at, at what we could have done better, what we could have done differently. That's all part and parcel. But it always the, the manager puts the team together, not anybody else. Craig Button is our guest here on 101 ESPN. You can find his work over at TSN. Uh, Craig, this all gets us to, or closer to at least, the trade deadline, where we're about four weeks away now. The big names for the Blues, they've been bandied about ad nauseum, are Vladimir Tarasenko and Ryan O'Reilly. we got to see O'Reilly, of course, get back on the ice first before we can really assess what, where he's at health-wise. But if we assume that both of them are healthy, ready to go, and they're both willing to go where needed, what do you think the return price is going to be for the Blues? What are they going to be looking for as we get closer to the deadline for those two guys uh, in particular? Well, I mean, like they're a little bit different points in, in, in their careers. You know, you know, a little bit older. You know, Vladdy's thirty-one, and you know, Ryan O'Reilly, who's been a terrific player. I mean, you're looking at a player that's thirty-two, and you know, and you look at what was in the return for Bo Horvat. Well, Bo Horvat's a lot younger. He's only going to be 28. But I, I, I think that the parameters of deals like that are in place. Is it, is, is it a prospect? Is it a, yeah, I don't think you're getting an A prospect. Could you get a first-round draft pick uh, for, for, from a team? Yeah, I think. Because the teams that are going to be interested in Ryan O'Reilly and Vladimir Tarasenko, those are the teams that are going to be picking lower in the first round. So they're looking at their first-round draft pick that's something okay. That's an that, that's a uh, a draft pick asset that we have that we're willing to part with. C- can you get a prospect 
like I said, I don't think it's an A prospect. I think you're looking at B prospects, maybe B plus prospects if you can push the envelope and, and, and try to get that. That's what I see as, as a reasonable return for those players. You know, one of the players that fascinates me tremendously, his salary is right, he's another UFA, is Ivan Barbashev. I think Ivan Barbashev has tremendous value out on the, uh, on the, on, on the trade market because his salary fits into a lot of different places. He, he, he can play in different spots in your lineup and do different things. And so he becomes another, I think he becomes a really significant player uh, for Doug Armstrong uh, to, to consider trading as well. And, you know, he's an unrestricted free agent as well. Do you think that resembles the Lekkonen deal from last year where he got a second round pick in return? Uh, which Lekkonen deal? From Montreal to Colorado. Yeah, the one to Colorado where he ended up getting a second round pick for, for Montreal. Well, he also got a, he, 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 who, who got the, well, uh, Justin Barron and and a second round pick went to Montreal. So again, so Montreal got the, got Justin Barron, right. Who was, who, who was a late first round draft pick and a second round pick. Right. So, uh, like, I think that, you know, those are parameters that fit. Those are, those are templates, I think, that, that, that you can work through and say, hey, this is what we got in this regard. But keep in mind, you know, it's great to talk about what happened then. You also have to understand what the marketplace is now. And so I think that we, you, you look at return, you can always, you can always ask for whatever you want. <laughs> but just because of what you're asking doesn't mean you're going to get it. And I think that that's where reality has to come in. And the market last year, it might be better this year. It might not be as good this year. It all depends on what's happening. But I think when you, when you, look, at, when you look at salary, you look at teams that are up against the cap, how they fit players in, what players may interest the St. Louis Blues or prospects, I think that that all becomes a factor as well. Do you think, Craig, that this is going to go to March 3rd for the Blues with those players, or could you see Doug striking a deal earlier than that? I could see Doug striking a deal earlier than that. You know, Doug has tremendous amount of experience, and he, he, he's also got his finger on the pulse. So, like, he, he'll know where there's, where, where there's, a, where there's a, a better deal potentially available. He'll also know, hey, listen, this is a deal that really makes sense for our team right here, right now. So, I, I, I mean, there might be a player. I mean, like, let's just use Ryan O'Reilly as an example. Like, like, I don't think any team that's a contender would be reluctant about adding Ryan O'Reilly. In fact, I think they'd be excited about adding Ryan O'Reilly. But because of a salary cap hit, right, you, you, you know, you're going to have to maybe get closer to that deadline, let more days pass before you can fit him in. You might have to do some more maneuvering. And this is what I mean about Doug having his finger on the pulse of the league. He also knows, okay, who's serious, who's not. Okay, I'm willing to go a little bit longer with you because I know what you're trying to do and I'm willing to work with you while you try to do that. But once he once he gets to a point, I'm talking about Doug here, where he says, okay, you're the team now that can make the deal, that, then he'll be ready to do that. Could that be March 3rd? Maybe March 1st? Could it be February 24th? It could be. But I think that it's, it's more, I could see an Ivan Barbashev perhaps you know, going a little bit earlier. But I also could see Ivan Barbashev going right to the deadline because teams that maybe are after Ryan O'Reilly or after another centerman that they that they were looking at or a versatile player like Barbashev coming back and saying, well, okay, we're, we're going to give you this for Barbashev. 
That's the experience factor of Doug knowing where he's at. So I, I think it's all dependent on on on, who, on on the teams that are pursuing them. But the salary cap and the higher salaries push teams to to want to wait a little bit longer, which means that the the, the trading team, the player that is going to move a player has to wait a little bit longer as well. Craig, final one from me. And, of course, the Blues get back in action on Saturday. And as we've just talked about, the trades are expected between now and March 3rd. From your perspective, is there anything to be watching with this Blues team the rest of the way? Because they do still have a competitive team that you hope can be turned around by next season. I think that they can turn around by next season. I don't, I don't have any question about it. You know, depending on what they do, you, you know, you have $7.5 million coming off the cap with Tarasenko. You have $7 million uh, coming off with – you have $15 million in O'Reilly and, 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 uh, and, and Tarasenko coming off the cap. You know, you got some young players that I think are, are, are ready to, to take another step. I talk about Thomas and Cairo. I mean, I think that – you know, their long-term contracts, you know, the way that they've shown that they can take a leading role is, is important for them. But they've got some really good young players in their system. And, you know, Jake Neighbors, who, who's not a front-line player, but, but, but he's a player you want in your lineup. He's competitive. He's hard. And so, you know, you start to look at, at those areas of, of, of your group and, 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 and money to spend. I, I, I don't think there's any question that you can uh, have an opportunity to be a good team next year. And I think if you're looking down the stretch here with your team, what you're, what you're trying to do is just trying to assess, okay, what do we need a little bit more here? It's going to give Craig Ruby and the coaching staff, let's try out this player here. Let's see if he can handle that, which also can become instructive for what more you might have to do in different areas of your team to be competitive next year. Craig, we'll get you out of here on this one. I got to ask you about the defense core because early on in our conversation, you mentioned team speed and defense as being two areas that need to improve. One of the problems, though, is they've got all these guys signed long term. They've got Letty for another three years. They've got Pareko for another seven. They've got Krug and Falk uh, for another four after this season. How do you navigate that if you're Doug Armstrong of trying to upgrade your blue line while having these long term contracts on the books? Well, it's not easy, okay? So it's not easy, but, you know, Colton Pareko, like, again, I'm going to go to Pareko, Letty, Krug, and, and talk about Paul. It's not so much that you're, you you can do anything with them, or that even if you want to do anything with them, I, I think it, it's how you support them. So, so who are the two defensemen? Who are the three defensemen? You, you know, you have Scandella, who's injured, and, and, and you know, can, can he come in, and can he uh, give you a little bit? But, you know, Bortuzzo, who, who's got another year, but he's under a million dollars. So if he doesn't play, you can put him in the minors. I, I think that it's about how, what type of defenseman, what two or three defensemen can you add that support those four defensemen, that, that, that allow those guys to be slotted into the right areas, ice time-wise, matchup-wise, where they can play to their capabilities and are not extended beyond them. That's the key. It doesn't have to be a sexy name. It just has to be two, I think, two really good players that can ease the burden on those on those four players that, as you point out, have long-term contracts. He's Craig Button, one of the best in the business. You can find his work over at TSN. You can follow him on Twitter as well, at Craig J. Button. We always appreciate him giving us a little time here on 101 ESPN. Hey, Craig, all the best to you and yours. Hopefully we'll talk with you again soon. 
Anytime you want, Alex and BK, always a pleasure to join you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Appreciate it as always. That's Craig Button, TSN hockey analyst. Uh, Appreciate him hopping on with us today. Alex, one of the things that, like, we just reacting to this real quickly, we've got Jason Stark coming up here in about 10 minutes or so. One of the things that does concern me a bit is when you have a national hockey analyst like Craig Button who comes in and says, you got to find the two or three other defensemen that can help you get the most out of your four defensemen that are under contract for next year at a combined $24 million. I signed those guys for $24 million, so I don't need somebody else to maximize them. And I think this is what's so frustrating is, They've tried Scandella. They tried Mikola. They tried Nick Letty. They've tried all these guys with Colton Pareko. At some point, the problem is Pareko. And it kind of goes back to like, we're all trying to recreate the, uh, the, the match that he had in 2019. None of these guys are Bowmeister, man. And you're not going to find Bo Meester. That guy doesn't exist right now. And if he does, you got to trade a lot to get him or you got to sign him for a lot of money. And again, that is me compounding the problem that already exists. So I I don't know how he goes about this. I think it involves moving at least one of those defensemen. Yeah, it's not one specific player that's the problem. Whether you want to point to Pareko or Krug or Falk, the problem is you've got four guys that slot in at best as two threes or three fours on a defensive core, you don't have a number one. And you know what a number one does? It covers up all of the issues that they have behind you because he's the go-to guy. Uh, And that is what Craig's talking about. Like you find somebody who maybe you don't need the sexy name, but you do need somebody who plays to the style. That's what's going to be so intriguing about this offseason is can you find somebody, but do they change up their scheme as a team? Like, do they shift away from whatever they're doing this season? Because I would imagine it's the same thing that they did last season. Do you switch it and say, now we have to lean heavy into the guys we have and figure out what works best? Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, we'll talk to Jason Stark, one of the best in the business, talking about baseball. Excited to get his thoughts on specifically the rule changes and how they impact both the play and also the fans. Jason Stark in 10 minutes. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Questions and answers coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text 314-399-9646. PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by James Carlton with State Farm. Have drivers under 25 on your insurance? Save hundreds of dollars a year with CarltonInsurance.net. 399-9646 is a, the Air Comfort Service text line for a turbo edition of questions and answers. Turbo time. we got Jason Stark coming up here in about five minutes or so. It is worth getting through these quickly to talk to our friend Jason Stark. All right, from the 443, Alex, when it comes to the draft, is it a lock that the Blues will take a best defenseman available, or do you think they try to replace Tarasenko, or does that even come into consideration in the draft? No, it doesn't, especially if you're taking top 10 you're picking the best player available there's not a lot of defensemen that are expected to go in the top 10 it's all forwards so if you're selecting the top 10 it's going to be the best player that doug armstrong thinks can help this team next season or in two years yeah you don't you don't even consider no, where you they don't, fit you, you don't care about defensemen it's just who's the best available from the 618 guys do you think that wilson Contreras will get a lot of scrutiny this season if things don't go well in his first season absolutely you got 
$18 million a year. He's replacing a legend here in St. Louis at a position that people in St. Louis especially value very highly. There will 100% be a lot of criticism of him and of the Cardinals if things don't go well. I don't expect that, though. From the 618, guys, why didn't you ask Craig Button about his thoughts on Colton Pareko? It seems like national media is higher on him than you guys are consistently. I will say, just to defend Alex, Alex is very much higher on Colton Pareko. I think even than a lot of the national media is a lot of the time. Uh, So don't want him to be grouped in with me and Tanner. I didn't ask about Colton Pareko specifically because, A, we didn't have time to do so, and, B, because I think he kind of spelled it out. Well, Craig, let's also remember Craig Button was the one that said Colton Pareko is not a number one defenseman. Like, he was the one that had said that when we interviewed him about Alex Petrangelo leaving. He said there's a difference between number one defenseman and top defenseman, and Pareko's a top defenseman on the Blues. He's not a number one defenseman. Uh, From the 636, guys, who do you think has more upside, Tink Hentz or Gordon Graceffo? Tanner, tell me if you agree with this. I think it's Tink Hentz. I think Gordon Graceffo is more likely to be a starter for the Cardinals. I think Tink Hentz has the higher upside of the two. I'd agree. Tink Hentz has more swing and miss stuff, so I think he's got a higher ceiling than Graceffo. Graceffo probably high ceiling 2-3. Hence might have a stuff at his best. Final question here for questions and answers from the 314. Guys, I just saw that it looks like the favorite for Derek Carr is the New Orleans Saints. Does that make sense for Carr? Does it make sense for the Saints? I was a little surprised by this. I don't think it makes sense for Derek Carr. I don't think it makes sense for either team. I agree with you there. If you're the Saints, I guess you get your franchise quarterback or you feel like you do. Do you? Maybe. I think he's the best available. Probably, but right I don't think you got a competitive team to win right now with Derek Carr. Agreed, but he's what thirty-two, so you've got you, you've got some time to be able to build around him. Maybe. I don't think it makes sense for Derek Carr because I don't know how you win immediately. Yeah, you a- don't. Unless you just say, "Hey, it's a terrible division. Maybe I can win the division." Because they already are like negative fifty like million dollars. <laughs> yeah. So you're not bringing in weapons for him. Who knows with Michael Thomas? So yeah, I. I don't think that's smart for either team. If I'm New Orleans, I'm going a younger quarterback, maybe in the draft. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll get some more NFL thoughts, especially on the Super Bowl with NFL quick hitters. Uh, coming up next, so excuse me, coming up in 15 minutes, we'll get more likely to happen. 9646 is the air comfort service text line. You give us two scenarios. We will tell you which one is more likely coming up at 1215. Jason Stark, baseball writer over at The Athletic, joins us next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I am Brandon Kylie. Coming up at about 10 minutes, we'll talk some more likely to happen. We'll get your scenarios here in just a little bit. But right now, we're going out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line to be joined by our friend, baseball writer over at The Athletic, the co-host of the Starkville podcast and an analyst over on MLB Network. He's Jason Stark joining us here on the show. Alex, I don't think there's been anybody in the national or local media baseball-wise that has talked more about these rule changes that we're now going to be seeing implemented in Major League Baseball than Jason Stark, and he's been doing it for years. His coverage has been excellent over at The Athletic. Jason, thanks so much for hopping on with us today. How you doing, my friend? Brandon, I'm good. How about you? Uh, Doing very well. Excited to see what these rule changes look like in in Major League Baseball this season. And I'm curious, as as you look at the rules that are now on the books, what do you think is going to be the rule that impacts winning the most? Like, what's the one that's going to impact the teams the most this year in your mind? Well, that's a really fun question. 
Um, I bet people would expect me to say winning. I, I'm sorry, the shift. But I, I don't think that's it. Uh, I I think it's going to be the change in the running game rules. As I've as as I've talked to teams over the last few weeks, that's what they are buzzing about the most. The idea that there's now basically a limit of two pickoff throws for every time a guy gets on base, plus the bigger bases, which shortens the distance, first to second, and second to third. It's a huge change, huge. And um, it's going to have a big impact, I think, on the mindset of teams, uh, how they deploy the running game, and maybe most importantly, how they strategize to control the running game on the other side. Um, Look, the rate of stolen base attempts, once these rules were put in place in the minor leagues, is something we haven't seen in the big leagues in 100 years. And so I I don't think we'll see that rate of base stealing, but we're going to see a massive jump in stolen base attempts, probably back to the you know, the running Redbirds, Whitey Herzog era. And I think that's an area where the Cardinals are definitely going to miss Yachty. That's interesting. Uh, Jason, as a follow-up to that, do you think that that then gives more value to, I mean, just locally a player that sticks out to mind, uh, to me, is Tommy Edmond. Like, do, do players like that become more valuable if that is the way that this game goes? Oh, there's no doubt. Um, you know, if if you have sprint speed going for you, and you know you don't mind taking the pounding that stealing bases inflicts on the legs, um, you, you know we're not going to see 33 bases lead the league in steals anymore. That's not going to happen. Um, I mean, I think the over under is 50, maybe 60, and it's you know stolen base, bases is not going to depend as much, nearly as much, on the ability to read pitchers, read moves, you know, timing. It's it's really going to be about just using sprint speed and using smarts to pick the right situations. So, Jason, you mentioned when you talked about the uh, stolen base attempts that the Cardinals are really going to miss uh, Yadier Molina. We just talked about that a little bit ago in terms of Wilson Contreras and the defensively how that's going to be a step back to, to what Yadier Molina was. But overall, as the catcher, do you feel like that was the best decision for the Cardinals? Well, of all the all the free agent options, uh, I think he was clearly the best catcher. I mean, personally, um, I would rather have Sean Murphy than him, but that's you know that that gets expensive to make a deal for a guy like that. Um, you know we've had a chance to watch Wilson Contreras a lot, right? He's a he's a good player, or he's, he's a really good offensive player, particularly at that position. I, I just think it's such a monstrous change in what that position has been in your town for your team. I and just watching the Cardinals for the last two decades, Yachty's presence hung over game uh, he, he was more than the catcher he was like the defensive coordinator he, he was that that rare guy who had an impact on every pitch and an impact before anyone ever threw a pitch and not just on the the pitchers uh, it's just hard to imagine that Wilson Contreras is going to bring that um, you'll you'll get plenty of offense from him and in that sense he's a good fit 
but how he connects with a pitching staff that's so used to a very different approach, to me, is one of the big spring plot lines. Jason, as a follow-up, do you feel like the offense he will provide this season outweighs the the shortcomings on defense? <laughs> well, it has to, doesn't it? Um, you know, I, I you know, I've, I can see what the metrics show us about Wilson Contreras, just like everybody else can. And you know, he he had a big jump last year in hard hit rate and exit velocity, and uh, the Cardinals do a really good job of maximizing the production of of guys with that skill set and guys who who show you th- that kind of uh, upside in the uh, in the metrics. Um, just the question is the adjustment of everybody to not having that thing that Yachty brought is it's just a major transition. It, it it's really hard to think of any player who's leaving that kind of void on any team by retiring. I mean, there's been somewhat in free agency, but in terms of a guy who just has always been there, feels like he's been there forever and now isn't, it, it's just hard to wrap your mind around it. To that point, Jason, the Cardinals have allowed 886 stolen bases since 2005. So basically the Yadier Molina era the next yeah. closest in Major League Baseball is the Diamondbacks, who have allowed 1,300 stolen bases. <laughs> so it's like the, the gulf is, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. It's a Grand Canyon-sized uh, gap between the Cardinals and the Diamondbacks, who were second. Yeah, it says it all. Um, I mean, to, to think of, uh, of a 400 or 500 stolen <laughs> base gap, that is just crazy. And... Again, the other reason that you'll be so conscious of it this year is just because there's going to be so many more stolen bases. And, you know, you're probably your best hope if you're the average team is to have a catcher with a great arm and great pop time who can compensate for the fact that runners are just going to get so many more great jumps. I know that there's there's going to be some stuff that teams are going to try, um, to, to, to slow things down, but the impact of the catcher on at least limiting stolen bases this year is going to be greater than we have seen in a really long time, maybe ever. And, it, you know, like Wilson Contreras is just not going to be that. Jason Stark is our guest, one of the best in the business, baseball writer over at The Athletic. You can also see him on MLB Network. So, Jason, my first question was, what's the rule change that's going to have the biggest impact on winning? Now let's kind of amend that a bit. The rule change that you think will change the viewing experience for a fan the most, maybe in a better or worse way, whatever direction you want to take this, what do you think that will be in 2023? Yeah, again, I don't think it's going to be the shift. I I think you'll have an extra hit or two a game because of the shift, and that'll mount up. That could be 3,000, 4,000 more hits over the course of the season across the league. But it's absolutely going to be the clock. I, I, I think I agree with the projections that Major League Baseball has done that think they're going to be able to cut 20 minutes off average game time. Average nine inning game time, and the thing about it is, hallelujah, yeah, right. And but it's you know it's not just about well you used to get used to go home at 
20 after 10, and now you get to go home at 10. <laughs> That's all dead time. It's a much better viewing experience. The game has so much better rhythm. It's it's so much more than time. It's the rhythm. Um, and so that part of it, it, I think, is really fun. If you've ever watched any of the games in the minor leagues with the clock, it's really cool how the game just moves. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know how guys are going to hit with their loose batting gloves now they don't have a, a half an hour to adjust in between pitches. But that, that, that that's going to have to change. The other part is, and this is really going to be true in spring training, the clock is going to create some stuff that we have literally never seen in a big league baseball game. Uh, the you know those potential. Angel Hernandez moments where he decides Nolan Arenado hasn't gotten in the box and locked in on the opposing pitcher in time and calls a strike or calls strike three or whatever is going to happen, these clock violations. There's going to be some madness just because of that, so I can't wait. Hey, just speaking from somebody, Jason, who's got two little kids, those 20 minutes mean something to go to bed at 10 o'clock rather than 10 know, 20. Right? <laughs> Everybody can use those 20 minutes. Amen to that. 20 more minutes. You get to bed earlier, which is always a good thing. Uh, Jason, the one thing that I know Cardinals fans are going to be talking a lot about this season, much like what last year was for the uh, final tour of Albert Pujols and Yadier Molina, is the final tour of Adam Wainwright in Major League Baseball. What do you you feel like the legacy for Wayno is going to be as a Cardinal? Well, I'm glad you asked because uh, Doug Glanville and I just talked to him this week uh, for our Starkville podcast, and it was so much fun, as always. And that's one of the things we didn't get into. He probably would be happier to discuss his legacy as a hitter than <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as a pitcher. True. But I, I, he's got to go down as the greatest Cardinals pitcher not named Gibson. Doesn't he? Is that even an argument? It's, uh, it's interesting because, like Chris Carpenter, I think some would put into that Dizzy category Dean. because of the, especially because of the dominance that he had. But I mean, the the extended run for Wayno, I think, is what will eventually put him above Carpenter locally, at least in my opinion. Yeah, and the yeah, I, I agree. Too. And, yeah, in terms of career value, I don't, I don't think there's uh, there's an argument here. Um, and the thing about Adam Wainwright is, I, I, I feel like he's still underappreciated outside of St. Louis. I, I think all the time about how easily he could have won two Cy Youngs, uh, possibly three. If that happens, he's a lock hall of famer. Plus, he threw the final pitch of a World Series, a uh, uh, special teammate, a leader, a uh, guy who makes it fun, who helps you get through the grind of the season. He, he's just one of those... He's that rare pitcher who has made an impact on his team every way you could make it. Believe me, it's rare for pitchers to be as involved in the the workings of the entire roster, the entire franchise, as he is. And the other thing is, and I told him this when we talked to him on the podcast, I, I feel like he had as much fun playing as any player or pitcher that I've ever been around and and. On, as, as any cardinal that you guys could think of, don't you think? Oh, yeah, and I, I think he's showing it more now, too, Jason. I think early on in his career, maybe you didn't see it quite as much. He's, he's that fierce competitor, and you always see that, but I think especially last season, I don't know if I don't know if you remember it, Jason, but when he was mic'd up prior to the game on ESPN Sunday Night oh, Baseball yeah. and that the pregame routine, the way that he was able to bring people in, 
We talked with him about that at winter warmup. He said that was when he knew I've still got something more to give to this game because of the number of people that reached out to him afterwards and said, man, that is something like coaches, kids, whatever. They reached out and said, that's something that we've never seen before. He said, I I can do more stuff like that. And I think that's the kind of thing that makes him truly unique is that he has the ability to portray that in a way that's fun and engaging. And you you just don't see that around the game very often. Oh, yeah. Uh, You know, he he interacts with fans regularly and you know, he's certainly made an impact on on a community uh he 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 really does let people in in a way that most players don't and you know it's funny that you bring that up because one of the things i asked him was hey you just got to watch albert and yachty <laughs> go through their last year um what you learn from watching them about how you ought to handle your last year and he said the thing that really hit him about albert was the joy, how much joy he played with from beginning to end, how much he appreciated uh, that season in St. Louis, um, the way that, you know, the way he interacted with that team, the way the fans showered him with love, all the stuff he got to do, then the the big finish offensively. Um, joy is a word that players don't talk about enough. Adam Wainwright's so um, so sharp in the way he perceives the importance of joy every day of being a baseball player. And if he's going to share that joy, not just with his teammates and his family, but with all of us, sign me up. <laughs> it's, it, it's what baseball's supposed to be about, right? This is all supposed to be fun. It is a game. Uh, Jason, we'll get you out of here on this one. I, I kind of two-part question, and I know I don't, I don't like doing this, but I uh, <laughs> wanted to kind of put these two together. We just talked a lot about Wayno and what he is as a player. He's going to go over 200 wins this season, and I know that's not the same stat that it once was for a lot of baseball people, but it is meaningful nonetheless. What do you think are his chances of eventually getting into the Hall of Fame? And then as, as a side piece to that, Scott Rowland was just voted in, and I, I would be curious your thoughts on him officially getting in, what I think is an overdue Hall of Famer for him. Yeah, I just came back from spending a week in Cooperstown um, for the announcement, uh, part of a lot of programming on MLB Network. And so it, it, it gave me a whole week to really think about the Hall of Fame, have a million conversations about the Hall of Fame and what it is and who we, who belongs in it. And Brian Kennedy and I just spent so much time talking about the fact that he mentioned 200 wins. And that didn't used to be a Hall of Fame magic number, but I think the magic numbers are now out the window. We don't, the game's played differently, we think about it differently, and it defines a Hall of Famer differently. So we're not going to have 300 game winners anymore. Uh, and if Adam Wainwright's going to win 200 and have the most wins of any Cardinals since Gibson, it, it definitely puts him in the Hall of Fame conversation. I don't think it would be an easy ride, but I think he has a long look on the ballot, and I, I mean, I could see it, because he he got as much out of his career as it was possible to get. Did it in multiple roles, had an impact on winning. Um, I believe in using the character and integrity clause, not, uh, not just to weaponize it against guys who were, quote, cheaters or bad bad dudes, but to use it as a as a plus, as a tiebreaker for people like him. Um, he's going to be a really fun conversation for the Hall of Fame, and I, I hope, I, I would love to see 
him give that speech someday. It would be so much fun. And Scott Rowan, uh, I was really happy about this one. Um, I, I think Scott's the, the first player who I knew before he ever played a game in the big leagues to get elected to the Hall of Fame. It, it, it means I've been around a while, but it's quite a, it's quite a thought. You know, I, I, he was 20 years old when I met him, uh, 21-year-old rookie of the year in Philadelphia. You know, what you experience when you watch Nolan Arenado play third base now is what I thought when I first watched Scott Rowland do his thing. I'd never seen third base played that way. You know, I, I, the column I wrote a couple weeks ago, I, I said he was like a combo platter of Brooks Robinson meets Lawrence Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> he was just going to attack every ball hit. And if he caught it, he could throw you out from anywhere. And just, um, a much better offensive player than people seem to have appreciated early on in the process. I was l- looking at his 2004 season for a team that won 105 games in St. Louis. And it was a nine-win season where he hit 34 home runs, had 1,000 OPS, and was the best defensive third baseman alive. And you could argue it's, it's the greatest individual season by any third baseman of, I don't know, what, how you, however you want to define modern times, division play era, whatever. Um, go take a look at that year sometime for that team and, and appreciate how great a player Scott Rowland was in his prime, in his peak, and before the injury started to take their toll. It was special. Uh, I know people in St. Louis, they, they remember that season fondly, to yep. say the least. It didn't end the way that anybody wanted it to, but um, it was it was a special season for that MV3 era of the Cardinals. Hey, Jason, it's always a pleasure to be able to catch up with you. Thanks so much for hopping on with us today, giving us so much of your time. We, we genuinely appreciate it, and hopefully we'll talk with you again soon as we get into the Cardinals baseball season. Yeah, sounds good. Love talking to you guys. You got Jason. It. That's Jason Stark, one of the best uh, to be able to talk a little bit of baseball with. Baseball writer over at The Athletic, co-host of the Starkville podcast and an analyst for MLB Network. People just don't think about baseball the way that Jason does, and I really enjoy talking it over with him. Um, I There's a million different things that we can react to there, Alex. I think the biggest thing is probably, uh, let's start with the beginning, the stolen base side of things. Yeah, the whitey ball returning. Let's start with that, and I think we're going to talk about this more tomorrow because I think we can have a 30-minute conversation about it. But if he's right, and it's just a hypothesis, right? Everybody's got their different ideas of what baseball is going to look like under this new era of rules. Man, I'm signing up for that in a heartbeat. Are you kidding me? Absolutely. That's... that's as exciting. That's as exciting of a, a element of a game that you could put back into baseball than anything else. I think the running, the running. I mean, that is always entertaining because it does multiple things. One, it gets you on your feet to see if it's an accomplished, a successful steal. But on top of that, you're putting guys and runners in scoring position, and you're you're scoring more runs, and it's creating more excitement in the game rather than the dullness of just being on first base and then grounding into a double play. You have more aggressiveness, action. Yes, that's, that's what he said. He's talking about, hey, you know, 20 minutes is 20 minutes. It's not the end of the world, I'm most but it's excited the about action. That. It's the rhythm. It's the flow of the game. I know Alex disagrees with that. 20 minutes is a big deal. I in get to household. go to bed at 10 o'clock. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but when you think about it, like when I'm watching a football game, one of the things I don't know how many football NFL games you guys have been to recently when you're actually at the game. 
you forget how much downtime there is in a football game. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. The commercial breaks feel like they last forever when you're there. When you're at home, you're watching Red Zone on a Sunday. Man, the pace is crazy. It's great. But when you actually go to a game, it doesn't feel that way sometimes. It's the same thing with baseball. Baseball has slowed down to a screeching halt in terms of the action. Forget the time, the action in the game. And I think this is something that can help that. Guys, do you know how many teams last year, full teams, because Jason said he thinks that the Major League Baseball leader this year in stolen bases could be at 60. How many teams last year do you think failed to reach 60 stolen bases on the season? One of these questions from BK. I'm going 10. No, I'm going like five. Seven. Seven teams failed to reach 60 stolen bases on the season. In fact, the Minnesota Twins... Failed to reach 40. I thought you were about to go 30, which would have been really incredible. They had 38 stolen bases on the year. If we get this game moving again, man, that's what you need to see. I will say one place that I disagree with Jason a little bit on is I actually think that with that part of the game, that defensive portion, I think Wilson Contreras is actually going to be okay. He's been, for the most part, at a minimum above average at throwing out potential base stealers. So I think that part he should be okay with. Now, he is not Yachty. Nobody is Yachty in handling the running game. But I do think he'll be all right in that regard. He's the one guy I'm not worried about in terms of that. Now, maybe framing pitches is going to be fine. But we've seen the arm of Wilson Contreras throughout his time with the Cubs. He's really good. And... Teams, if I remember correctly, the, that stretch where Chicago was so dominant, teams didn't steal very often on Wilson Contreras because now, he they stole on John Lester, but that was John well, Lester. But that's John Lester <laughs> not getting to the freaking plate fast enough. But Wilson Contreras, I, re- I recall having a rocket of an arm. So I'm not worried about him there. And the framing of the pitches, is that going to be a factor? That's the one I, I will. still remain to be seen with that. There will be frustrations. Like there's going to be moments where you say you know to yourself what? during a game, hey, Yachty would have had that one. Pitch better. Sure. Hit the uh, damn strike zone. Also fair. It, it's going to happen, though. Like, we need to accept that going going into it. Last year when we saw Kisner behind the play, and I know BT talked about this a lot on the broadcast and then as well on, on the fast lane, there's going to be moments where you say, yeah, that, that's something kids got it. Kiz has to have because Yachty would have had it. We just can't hold Contreras to that same standard because nobody, reg- whether it was Sean Murphy or Alejandro Kirk, Moraine, whoever it was that you were going to get, they weren't going to be Yachty. And that's definitely going to be the case for Contreras as well. The other thing I wanted to react to uh, briefly here was what he said about Adam Wainwright. And I think this is probably going to be the thing that I miss most about Waino whenever he does decide to retire, whether that's this year, which he has said, or beyond. Waino brings so much enjoyment to the game. And whether that's just the conversations that you have with Waino after he starts or it's him taking all of us inside his pregame routine, the old man walks at the ballpark coming off of his starts. Like all of that stuff is unique. And we I think we fall sometimes prey to or victim to the fact that like we've just seen it so long because he's been here that we don't really think much of it. That's not something that happens in other markets. That's not something that happens with other pitchers. He is uniquely qualified for all of that stuff. And that's what I'm going to miss most about Wayno, even more so than anything that happens on the field, because obviously that's going to be missed as well. It's the stuff that he brings off the field, the conversations that he has with people, the things that he's able to bring us into whenever he's gone. I'll remain on this until he gets into the Hall of Fame, but I believe he's a Hall of Famer. And those are those are reasons why, but it's also, and Jason kind of touched on it there, the longevity of his career 
because he pitched in so many different eras of baseball and had success. And that's where I feel like Adam Wainwright comes down to it. And he's right. The numbers, of course, are going to be on top of it. But everything that you put into consideration, it's going to be an interesting season because it's not like what Pujols and Yachty was where you saw him on a nightly basis and you knew they were coming out. This is going to be an every fifth day thing with Wayno. And if he stays healthy, the excitement and the uh, anticipation of that start for him, I think, is going to start from spring training, which it's not going to be World Baseball Classic, all the way up until the end of the season. God, I hope he's good this year. I I really hope that what we saw at the end of last year is not a sign of things to come. I I, I don't think it will be. I think he's going to be able to get this thing figured out. I don't think he would have come back if he wasn't able to figure it out. But I, I really hope he's able to have the kind of send off that Wayno did last, or that Albert <laughs> yeah. Albert did last year. I, I don't. I'm not even expect. Like I don't want him to be. I want him to be dominant, but if he's not, I just want him to stay healthy. Just be a solid number three. Yeah. If you can be a solid uh, see, number three starter for the Cardinals, I think they're in good shape. Just be be worthy of being in the rotation is all I'm asking. And stay healthy. I because yeah. I, I even if you have a rough season, I get it, man. Like you've probably you've probably burnt this candle all the way down to the stud. But for Wayno, stay healthy because I don't want your final season to be you on the injured list for four of the six months. From the six one eight guys, I think Wayno as a future broadcaster is what ultimately gets him in because of the extra attention that it will bring. I think it's possible Wayno gets into the Hall of Fame as a broadcaster. Like even if he doesn't end up getting in a as a player, Hall of Famer? I, I don't know. I I think if he doesn't get in as a player, I think he has a very good chance of getting in as a broadcaster because I think he's going to be that good at you it. You know who he he reminds me of, and and I'm sure people have listened to him. He he reminds me a lot of a Bob Euchre as a broadcaster, and that's where I could see him becoming legendary. I think he can be better than what we've seen so far from Smoltz. I, I think he can be that level of good at broadcasting. And the reason why is because I think he he's a great storyteller. He brings that side of things, and that's yeah. where the Euchre comes in. He's got a great personality the way that Euchre does. And I also think he is more open to some of the modern elements of baseball that, I'm I, just going to be totally honest, I don't think Smoltz is. Um, and I think that's going to make him a better broadcaster. Well, T-Bone cross John Smoltz off of our list of ever getting him on the I, show. I, I like Smoltz. I like I'm Smoltz. Not, I think he's BK. really good. But I think <laughs> that Wayno's going to be better. Coming up in 15 <laughs> minutes, we're getting into the junk drawer. But next, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. You give us two scenarios. We'll tell you which one is more likely coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. What's more likely to happen? They'll figure it out. BK and Ferrario's most likely to happen. Guys, the Cardinals have made a move. Andrew Chafin is a Cardinal. No, 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 no. Michael Fulmer is a Cardinal. Mm -mm, Matt Moore is a you guys are in the right lane. He is a left-handed reliever. Oh, it's probably someone I've never heard of. Okay. All right, come on. Tell me the team. Or no, is it free agent signing? No, nope, it's trade. Okay, who did they trade with? Tell me the team, because this is, this yeah, is like yeah, the yeah, Yankees yeah, yeah. or the the Red Sox or, heck, might be the Braves. Mm-hmm. Who? Royals. Son of a... He got him from the Royals. Oh, well, he so what'd they trade for him? Because that's probably a big cash. Tell. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. 
<laughs> they traded cash oh, considerations okay. uh, for a left-handed reliever. I'm never going to know this guy. I'm never going to see him this <laughs> he year. He has played in Major League Baseball for the past three that seasons. That doesn't help the Royals field so a double Drew Verhagen. He previously was with the Mariners. That doesn't make it any better because previously with the Mariners, Mariners previously were terrible. Yeah, I have no idea. Anthony Msevich is his name. Unfortunately, our guy James Nail has been designated for assignment as the corresponding move. Anthony just put the nail in the coffin there, huh? Ah, too soon. (laughs) I like James Nail. You know what? That was good. No, it's not. James Nail was one of my favorites. That was quick. You didn't even know that he was a part of this move. I'd I'd say Mo nailed this one. I hate you. You, you doubled down on it. The first one I'll give you your credit for. The second one, not so much. Uh, Ryder, Ryder you're not a, even laughing, man. James Neal was a member of the Circle of Trust at one point, wasn't he? Do you want to know more about this? this no, Anthony I, I don't like this guy. No, 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 no. You've ruined my day. I'll never talk to him when I'm at the ballpark. Well, he'll never talk to you. Because he won't be here. He's got a three-pitch mix. What? Good for him. <laughs> Throws four seams, curveballs, and cutters. Oh, like that he's got a cutter. He's got as a good a lefty. ground ball rate. That's why I love James Nail. Uh, let's see here. No, he, no, he doesn't. It's not not particularly yeah, great. Yeah. No, no, he's not on the ground. Don't too care often. about his cutter. Um, <laughs> his swing and miss stuff is fine. Uh, got we, great spin on uh, his. I curve. don't care about that. Great spin on his curveball though. Analytics are ruined in baseball. Prove it. Just, he actually had a pretty decent year last year. I don't. I don't care. Yeah, you can you can step away from this. Doesn't get a lot of strikeouts. Doesn't walk too many guys. Looks like your typical Cardinals left-handed reliever. Someone said it's James Dale's birthday. Is it really? Is it, is it James really? Dale's birthday? No way. It can't be. Oh, that, what a terrible moment. That's actually pretty messed up. It is. is. It? He turned 30 today. Oh, oh Mo, no. that is cold-hearted. Oh, oh. no. Oh. Oh, man. Oh. That's brutal. In all seriousness, oh. that's Mo, brutal. Mo did put the nail in the coffin. You were right. I guess he found the rusty nail. Uh, let's double down. Man, that's tough, oh. man. Uh, you know what? I someone am going to be more tough on someone this said year. two for two in my book. Thanks, 636. I nailed both of those. He got waved on his birthday. Cruel. That's 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 that's, that's brutal. not cool, man. <laughs> for a guy that they acquired from the Royals for man, cash. He, I, imagine when Mo called him. James Nail's like, oh, man, Mo's going to wish me happy birthday. James, <laughs> happy birthday. Yeah. By the way, you're on waivers. Uh, so you may need to pack your bags. All right, hold oh, on. Let's man. look up, because I'm going to be like BK. Let's look up his baseball savant page. Who, this Anthony yeah. character? No, I, that's what I'm looking at. He's He's got a good spin rate on his curveball, doesn't throw the ball very hard, and... That's pretty much all you got. Like, he, he was Good okay. God, he doesn't throw the ball hard at all. No. Nope, nope, There's a lot doesn't. of blue on his fastball velocity. That's not what you want, but he throws 93 on Curve average. spins great. So this is a one-pitch one pony, huh? Yeah, so last year he was very unlucky. The expected batting average, oh. Alex's favorite number. The whoa bacon, huh? On his fastball was 220. His actual batting average allowed against his fastball, 350. <laughs> So, it didn't work out so well for him last what year. Are we, what are we doing, Mo? It's a guy that the Cardinals are hoping they can fix. They've done this a million different times with left-handed relievers. I would say, like, if there's an actual take to be had here, whether it's this specific move or the abundance of random relievers that they've added this offseason, I don't think that they're in the relief they, market, like the actual relief market. They so Andrew even Chapin. posted on Instagram three hours ago, happy birthday, James Nail. Well, maybe they didn't know that they were doing this three hours ago. Oh, this is cruel. Should we, get, should we see if James wants to hop on? 
That's a bummer. All right, uh, let's get to more likely to happen. 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line for more likely to happen. Guys, m- someone said, you know those memes of the guy sitting at home with his birthday or birthday hat on and one of those blow whistles? <laughs> That's James Nail sitting by himself. Uh, right <laughs> That's not nice. I feel bad for him. He's Will Smith coming back into the house after they moved everything out. Where's everybody at? Uh, guys, what's more likely to happen? Jack Flaherty ends up as a top 10 finisher in the National League Cy Young voting or Tyler O'Neill finishes top 10 in the MVP voting at the season's end? I'll say Jack. Just because I feel like there's a lot more incentives around it with him. Walk year. Guy who's talked about going into free agency, wanting to get paid. Uh, top 10 National League Cy Young seems difficult with the talent around, but top 10 MVP in the National League for Tyler O'Neill seems even more difficult, especially when you play with two guys who could be pushing for the MVP. Yeah, I, I think it's more likely it is going to be Jack Flaherty because as Alex said, you know, he does have the incentive contract year and like, I can see a scenario in which he could do that. For Tyler O'Neill, I can see the scenario, but it is going to be harder because he's going to be hitting like fifth or sixth in the lineup for the Cardinals. I think it's more likely Contreras would get more votes with a big year than what Tyler O'Neill would, and the NL is just loaded with talent. So I I think it's going to be tough for O'Neill to get back into that conversation, so I think it's more likely it's Jack Flaherty. I'm going to go Tyler O'Neill, actually. And the reason why is because we've seen him perform at an incredibly high level more recently. It's so hard, man, to get legitimate votes in the Cy Young conversation in this day and age. I, even if Jack has a great year, it'd be tough for him to be able to get into that conversation. So I'll, I'll go. It's more likely that Tyler O'Neill ends up finishing in the top 10 in the National League MVP voting instead. Uh, guys, more likely... To finish the season, let's do it this way. Which one is more likely to finish the season with more at-bats? Alec Burleson or Jordan Walker? Who will finish this season with more at-bats this year? Jordan Walker. Alec Burleson or Jordan Walker? More likely with Jordan Walker because at some point this season, he'll be an everyday outfielder. And I'm not sure Alec Burleson's ever going to get an opportunity to be an everyday position player for the Cardinals. So I'm thinking Jordan Walker. That's kind of where I am. Is I, I think Burleson's in the tough spot to where even if he plays well and Walker's playing well down in the minor leagues, they're going to leapfrog Burleson for the more highly touted prospect in Jordan Walker. So I, I think it is more likely Walker will get more at-bats. It's going to be tough for Burleson, one, to just get at-bats coming out of spring training, and two, to fend off a guy like Jordan Walker and guys like O'Neal and Lars Newbar and Juan Yepes. So I think it will be Jordan Walker. I think Jordan Walker as well. I. I do think we're sleeping a little bit on Alec Burleson. We'll talk about that more coming up in the one o'clock hour, but I think we are sleeping a little bit on the impact that he could have on the Cardinals in 2023. More likely to happen, Alex, the Blues trade Nola Chari or the Blues trade Nico Mikla at the deadline? Blues trade Nola Chari. Um, 
as much as Mikola seems like he'd be desired for being a defenseman, a physical defenseman, he has made a lot of mistakes this season. And if a player, if he's being acquired by a team, they're looking for somebody to slot into their top four because a lot of teams already have players who can play on the third pair. And I'm not sure Stanley Cup contender teams Mikola fits into the top four. Noah Chari plays on any team in terms of pursuing a Stanley Cup championship. Uh, I would imagine Boston's probably going to be calling about Noah Chari if he's available. Edmonton's going to be calling because they need a little bit of grit. So Noah Chari, because we haven't seen a contract extension and I'm not expecting any, uh, Noah Chari seems to be the one that's going to be more likely to trade. See, I I lean more towards Mikola because I think teams, I, I don't remember who it was that said this. Maybe it was Jamie or maybe it was Alex. I can't remember. Um, have always said, you know, you you can never have enough defensemen. And I think Mikula is a guy that someone could get for like a fourth round pick. You bring him in, he becomes like your seventh defenseman, like Edmonton, for example, the team that we've heard connected to him. Bring him in, he's your seventh defenseman. If you need him in a pinch, you can play him like like what happened to the Blues where they were playing like their ninth defenseman last year in the playoffs. Always need that depth. I think it's more likely they acquire him, though I don't think Army's going to get any contract extensions done during this break. That doesn't mean he doesn't try to get one done past the break. If they don't move Achari... And yes, if, if you haven't gotten an extension, I think you should look to move him. But say you don't, you don't get what you're looking for. They can still sign Nolachari to an extension. I, I just think it's more likely it's Mikla because I think everybody's going to be looking for depth defensively. And he's a guy that can come in and perfectly serve as that sixth, seventh pairing, seventh man. Yeah, we're, I, I, th- I think, I think it's Nolachari. Um, I think that he's the one that's more likely to be traded because it's so easy to fit him into your team. And you just bring him in and whether you need a third or a fourth line center, you know exactly what you're getting with Nolachari. Nico Mikola, I think, has more questions. Where's he fit into your mix? Is he going to be the guy that can play top four minutes? Is he going to be a third-pairing defenseman? Do the Blues want to bring him back? That's also something that could factor into all of this. I would say no, but I don't know where they're at on that conversation. So I'll go Nola Chari. All right, next one up, going to the NFL side of things. Guys, more likely to happen. Russell Wilson is on the Broncos in 2024 to open up the season, or Kyler Murray is on the Cardinals to open up the 2024 season? Ooh. Um, I'll say it's Russell Wilson. I thought we were done. Yeah, I was going to say. And, and we, you know, after crying about James Nail, the bed ran out on us. Okay. So. <laughs> Makes it's, sense. It's I'll, say, I'll say Russell Wilson and the Denver Broncos. You don't make this move for Sean Payton unless you believe, well, not believe, know that Russell Wilson's going to be here for the remainder of that contract. See the report that came out yesterday? Can I be honest? I don't buy it. You don't? Well, I I missed the report. What was the report? Terry Bradshaw's an old man that loses his mind. That's true. Uh, According to Terry Bradshaw, reliable source, Sean Payton took the Denver job, quote, in spite of Russell Wilson. He also added that Sean Payton didn't want the Cardinals job because he didn't want to work with Kyler Murray, which that part I definitely believe. I I absolutely believe that. A lot of people do not want to work with Kyler Murray. I think Brian Flores said I'd rather be a defensive coordinator than be a head coach for this guy. For what it's worth, Russell uh, Wilson, $85 million in dead money if they cut him prior to next year. Kyler Murray, $81 million in dead money prior to next year. So they're both kind of, it's hard to get out of either of them. I don't buy that. You don't take a head coaching job in spite of a quarterback. You take a head coaching job because you could believe with that quarterback. I kind of agree there. I think it's more likely that Kyler is back. Than, than Russ. I think it's more likely it's Russ because I think I could see Arizona not eating that dead cat, but I could see them trying to move him. I, I just think if you're Sean Payton, you don't take that Broncos job if you don't think you can fix Russell Wilson because it's unlike, you know, Brian Flores, uh, Mike Kafka, Big Lou, who it's kind of, hey, it's one of 32, I should take it. 
Sean Payton could have waited out this cycle and gotten potentially a better job next year. Like, I don't know, the Chargers, for example, and Brandon Saley when he gets himself fired. I uh, Should be fired right now. I, I, I don't think he takes that job unless he believes he can fix Russ or he still sees that Russ has got game and it was just the system around him. So I, I think it's Kyler's the one that's more likely not to be on his team the following year. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll talk about Alec Burleson and could he have a role that is more significant than we expect going into this upcoming year? tell you one national analyst that thinks he could hit 20 to 25 home runs in the big leagues in 2023 if he was an everyday player we'll talk about that coming up at the top of the hour the junk drawer though coming up next you're on 101 espn we're right back to the pk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn let's open it up the junk drawer with bk and ferrario Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. Hello, inside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, uh, we're talking about Alec Burleson because there was a piece earlier today saying, hey, he could hit 20 to 25 home runs if he was an everyday player. Okay. Okay. What? Okay. All right. Maybe we're sleeping on uh, one Alec Burles, and we'll Man. talk about him coming up in about 10 minutes or so. Can have another stud on top of having Juan Soto on your team. But coming up right now, let's dive into the junk drawer. Alex, you were a pest right control individual. Yeah, I saved the world from pests. Did you ever come across a situation where a bird oh, I saw hoarded this. hundreds of pounds of acorns <laughs> inside of a home? No. And I, I mean, look, I've seen a lot of weird ish in people's walls and ceilings. Like I've had moments where you lift one of those ceiling tiles up and cockroaches come falling out. Um, but, That's disgusting. Oh, yeah. You have me. to move. I, they didn't, by the way. They thought that our pest control was going to take care of it, which it did. But they didn't understand that one service doesn't take care of it all. Um, but no, I've never seen that Although I don't know how the hell that could happen without you hearing it. So that's what I wanted to know is, A, how long do you think this would take for a bird to put, it says, 700 pounds of acorns inside of the walls of a home? So, like, behind the... If it had an easy entryway, I don't think it would... I think it would take... 700 pounds of acorns. How do you even find 700 pounds of acorns? Go look at my backyard of my house. <laughs> I'll show it to you. That had to be going on for like five years. See, absolutely. I if there's an easy access point, like a big enough hole for that bird to get through, I would imagine that it would take quicker. Uh, or it would take a quicker amount of time than you would expect. Really? Well, because if it's building its nest or something, it's just going to keep going back and forth. If it's a smaller what, to build a mansion, is a nest? Yeah. But if it's a smaller entryway, then you gotta like navigate your way through it. You'd be surprised at how fast how that many... those birds can so do I stuff guess like that. Follow-up question: How many acorns do you think that the bird could take back and forth on a per-trip basis? Well, and also how many birds? It's not just one bird that's doing could it. Be. No, it's not. This bird, bird you think this one bird is just living the uh, bachelor life and saying, yeah. nah, I'm just going to live in this wall by myself with all these I nuts. Know, I, had, I had two that were living in my home for a summer. Exactly. We leave <laughs> them in there long enough. Can you imagine if they did this to my home? Well, I was going to say, leave them in there long enough. There'll be about six of them. Well, they, they were no longer invited back. Yeah, you killed them, didn't you? No, I didn't. Don't say that on the yeah, air. Yeah, well, no. let's calm down over no, there. No, 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 no. That is a violation. That's what happened. I, I would say this would take a, a fair amount of time, but a quicker than you would imagine. That's the thing, though. How do you let that happen without hearing it? I don't know. 
I, I don't know how but any I can, of this I can happens. see oh, actually a bird. I don't know because like you said, you heard the birds when you've discovered oh, yeah. you had them. You hear them. So that part oh, I don't yeah, understand. They're loud, mother bleepers. I, I, I could <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> I could understand. I could understand. <laughs> I could understand where like. You didn't hear the bird like dropping off the acorns, but yeah, you would hear them because they would be chirping in the morning telling you, you know, the sun has come up tomorrow. Uh, but yeah. Did you yeah. just mix like three things together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you just mix Annie with a bird. So to give Is you the full Annie? details on this story, this took place in California. Nick's extreme pest control was called to the house. <laughs> it's and extreme, all right. When they arrived, uh, the workers say that woodpeckers were making small holes to store food inside of the home. Oh, it was woodpeckers which too? kept falling into spaces in the walls. When they cut into the wall, they found that over 700 pounds of acorns were being held inside of the walls of that home. So, yeah, it's it's woodpeckers that were... Oh, that, that, somebody really somebody made that. a great point. I didn't know birds were interested in acorns. I'm guessing this is just, like you said, trying to make a nest and then storing whatever's around. It maybe became hoarding. Oh. I I don't know, man. This is wild. Yeah. And if it's a woodpecker, that that they said it was eight trash bags worth of acorns that, that makes had even been more sense into the walls oh of this home. But like again, how do you not hear this? Because the woodpecker, you're hearing the like they're 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 doing. How those do you holes? allow it? Like even oh, if yeah. maybe at first you didn't think anything of it, right? But this had to be going on maybe not years, but I would say over Months. the course of a summer. Well, but or that's like going into the whatever it is. And that's months a thing. that if it was taking place. You're something you're going to go out and investigate. And if this woodpecker is finding a way in your house like you did, you found the entry where where the birds were coming yeah. from. You're going to go look for it. And when you find it, you're going to say, OK, we need to figure this out. I could I could see like maybe you don't hear it when you're at work, but. I would assume you have some off time to where you'd be at home when well, they the weekends, you'd hear that. Yeah. Now yeah. I'm gonna go ahead and just assume that what the text line is telling us right now is true. That is a well, that's the text line. Bold decision to make, but here we are. This is your fearless leader. I'm gonna go ahead and do it. From the three one four, the acorn woodpecker does this all the time in California. They are named Clownface. They do it continuously for future feeding. According to this texture from the 314, yeah. I lived near them for years in California. They do it um, around the eve, best higher no- up. Best known for its habit of hoarding acorns. The birds drill holes in their, or to create their nest and then begin their nesting with acorns. I'm trying to find out, like, how... This is interesting. From the 636, guys, I work on siding on homes all day, every day. That's my day job. I'd say one in four St. Louis homes in this area have something like this. Oh, really? Yeah. You That's have something crazy. Li- you have something living in your home. You just don't realize it. You do. Oh, I'm I'm glad that I'm ignorant of that fact. Oh, me too. <laughs> I think I'm glad of that too. Actually. So how about this? A group may consist of ten or more birds, as many as sixteen, which uh, defend communal food stores and nesting territory year round. Oh, so well, you could have up to sixteen up. woodpeckers drilling holes and picking up so, acorns and bringing them back. I I wonder because like my the first house the house that I first grew up in in only Illinois was a. Uh, wood house and I would wake up in mornings where a woodpecker would be doing that on the like wall of my bedroom I I may have been living with acorns I'm telling you like people don't realize the amount of uh, pests that have resided in your homes at some point somebody on the text line I don't appreciate <laughs> this where is it at Six, from three, the 573 five, 
that's interesting that the woodpeckers have the nickname clown face that's what everybody at 101 espn on the staff refers to bk behind his back as i didn't need that i thought we were all having a good time today i mean probably call you more of a woodpecker than a clown why is Uh, that alex should i uh do you want to do you want to clarify uh yeah, man. Such a jokester. It's because of the nose. The beak. Yeah. Is that what you're referencing mm-hmm. here? Yeah. Okay. Have you ever tried to drill a hole with that thing? <laughs> you ever tried? Anything else? You seem like you're you're you you'd store acorns. Where at? For the winter? Where do you think they would go? Probably in your Adam's apple. Yeah, saw that one coming from a mile away. Come, Come on! Fifteen minutes. <laughs> <laughs> to some NFL quick hitters, including some fraud that works on an Eagles uh, podcast (laughs) that needs to be put into his place. I'll tell you why coming up in 15 minutes, but next. So are we underrating Alec Burleson's potential impact in 2023? We'll tell you coming up here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I'm positive on Burleson. Um, I think we have a hitter on our hands um, who understands kind of what he needs to do to have success. He, he swings a lot and he makes a lot of contact. So we need to get him to the point where he's a little more selective in what he's swinging at and then looking to do a little bit more damage when he does swing. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. In 10 minutes, we're talking about uh, the Super Bowl And we're specifically going to just destroy an Eagles podcaster from Philadelphia. I'm mad at him. BK got super angry, kind of like I do when you say uh, Colton Pareko is not good. Uh, I don't say that. I say that he's a little overvalued for his contract. A little. But we can get into that at a later date. All right. So that was Ollie Marmel at Winter Warmups talking about Alec Burleson and what he can be for the Cardinals in 2023. Alex, I, I think most of us have the same view on what Alec Burleson is. Best case scenario, hopefully a fourth outfielder slash DH type for you this year that hits from the left side. Maybe he hits for a decent average and he helps you as a bit player. I'm trying to think of a good comp for him from last year, but I'm not really sure that there was one you know in terms the one, of the role. You know what? Kind of like lesser version Corey Dickerson. The the player that I was thinking of best case scenario for him is a Matt Adams as a pinch hitter. Yeah. Like Matt Adams was the go-to guy off of the bench. But as an outfielder instead of first base. Yeah. Matt was an outfielder. Well, he was an outfielder. Kind of. Not as much anymore. I could see that. But like what Matt Adams' role was. Early in his career. Yeah. What his role was before he was the everyday first baseman was, this is our reliable go-to bat off of the bench. I think that's actually a really good comment. And that's what I think Alec Burleson's, that's the ceiling I'm expecting from him. So that actually works out well with what Keith Law wrote about Alec Burleson earlier today. He put out his top prospects in the Cardinals system, ranked all of them one through 30, and then put a brief write-up on each and every individual player. He had Alec Burleson at number seven among the the top prospects in the system ahead of Joshua Baez, ahead of McGreevy, ahead of Cooper Jerpy. Here's what he wrote about Alec Burleson. 
He said he's a soft 50 grade for me. Uh, a big leaguer who's a regular on some, t- some teams, but probably not all, with a strength for all fields power, but too much tendency to expand beyond the zone. I think that gets back to what Ollie Marmol was just talking about there. I didn't think he'd be able to handle good velocity, but he did exactly that in the minors, showing he can turn on good stuff up the zone and take stuff middle away to the opposite field. He's a below-average runner. He's a below-average defender in either corner outfield spot, but that could improve with a little better positioning at the big league level. He could step in and be the Cardinals' everyday right fielder this year, and if he did, I think he could hit 20 to 25 home runs with an on-base percentage in the low 300s, which is basically a decent power hitter as an everyday player for the Cardinals. Alex, when you hear that kind of a write-up about Alec Burleson, and this is a guy that last year in AAA over the course of 110 games hit 20 home runs and hit 330 on the season, have we underestimated what Alec Burleson could be for this year? And could that explain why the Cardinals opted not to go sign one of the left-handed hitters available? I think it explains it absolutely, especially because what Mo said in terms of they they talked to left-handed bats in the offseason, but none of them were willing to accept the role that the Cardinals were offering. And that role is what Alec Burleson is going to be. Now, I'm not buying in on Keith Law saying that he could slot in as an everyday right fielder because I don't know if the defense matches up to what the Cardinals need out there. But the bat, I just don't know. Because as much as I can sit here and say, yeah, he could probably hit you 25 to 30 home runs, I haven't seen it. We've seen 16 games from him at the major league level. He's done it in Memphis, but how many guys have we seen tear it up in the AAA and then get to major leagues and they're a shadow of themselves? So the potential's there, but man, for a guy who's only played 16 games at the major league level, I don't see that happening this season. Yeah, I... I... It's tough for me to get a read on Alec Burleson because I do think he's going to be much better than he was last year because last year he just had the cup of coffee and he looked clearly overmatched. I I, I don't think that's what Alec Burleson is. Okay. I, I don't think he's a 4A player. I, I think he has the potential to be kind of that fourth outfielder. I agree with you, Alex. I, I don't know if I see him as like a starting right fielder for the Cardinals. Maybe he starts for you in a pinch, kind of like what you could do with Juan Yepes if you're dealing with injuries or... You know, you're just playing the hottest bat. I, I, I don't see the power. I, I didn't see the power last year. But again, it was only 16 games. He did have 20 in Memphis last year. So maybe it is there, and it was just hard to kind of see it because of just like like I said, he, he was overmatched last year. It, it'll be interesting because I, I see him more as a contact hitter, kind of like what you were saying with Matt Adams, where, yeah, there is power there, but he's more of a guy that's going to hit for more average than he is going to slug the ball. But maybe he ends up having that power profile, and last year was just one of those, hey, you got your cup of coffee, you looked really overmatched, maybe you can end up being that fourth outfitter. But he he was the guy I think they were looking to kind of, quote-unquote, replace by bringing in another left-handed bat in the offseason. Somebody on the text line brought up, guys, I think he reminds me a lot of a left-handed version of Juan Yepes. I brought up that comp in the in the office before our show today. I think it's an interesting one, and the way that I would do it is to, like look back at what Juan Yepes was in 2021, because I think that's probably uh, where Alec Burleson was last year. Like, he's one year behind in terms of his development curve, where Alec or where Juan Yepes has been. In 2021, Juan Yepes hit 290 on the season while he was in AAA. Last year, Alec Burleson hit 330 in AAA. The on-base percentage for Juan Yepes was 382. That's slightly above, so he had a little better of an eye than Alec Burleson, who's at 372. And I think that also speaks that that gap there, where Yepes was walking about nine percent of the time, and it was only um, it, it was a really low rate, honestly, for Alec Burleson last season at AAA. I think that speaks to the swinging too much. 
Uh, he needs to get a little bit more calm at the plate, have a better approach. But you look at the power as well. In 92 games, Juan Yepes had 25 homers and tw- or 25 doubles and 22 homers at AAA. Last year at AAA in 110 games, so 15 more games, Alec Burleson had 25 doubles and 20 homers. Pretty similar, man, when you're looking at what those guys were able to bring one year apart at the same level. Context is important. You don't know what the difference was in level of opponent, who they hit against. Like, There's a lot of stuff that goes into that. Would you sign up right now, kind of one of these hypothetical button games? J.D. Drew, yes. Would you sign up for Alec Burleson this year to give the Cardinals what Juan Yepes gave them a year ago? Juan Yepes last year hit 250 for the Cardinals and finished the season with 13 doubles, 12 homers, about a 750 OPS. Would you sign up right now for those numbers from Alec Burleson in 2023? About 10% above league average offensively. I'd sign up for that because I think that's an asset that you don't have or didn't have last season. You had the Juan Yepes, but after Juan Yepes, you didn't have that. Now you've got two Juan Yepeses. So yeah, if you're going to give me those numbers in your first full season as a major leaguer and possibly possibly provide us a little bit better defense than Juan Yepes in a corner outfield spot. It might yeah. be pretty similar. I'm in. I, I would sign up for that, too, because that's a pretty big step for... You want to take your victory lap? Hold on, T-Bone. Let's see if he wants to take his why? victory lap. For what? Yeah, I don't I don't understand what his victory lap's for. I uh, I I, th- I would press that button for... I don't for... need a reason, let's be honest. <laughs> True. <laughs> I, I, would, uh, I would press that button for him to become like Juan Yepes because what a major step that would be from going from a guy that I looked at last year and went... Oh, boy, yeah, he looks really overmatched. Looks like AAA, he needs some more time, too. Being 10% above league average and being that from the left side, which clearly there's a market. there was a market this offseason for left-handed bats, that would be huge. I, I think they need him slash Gorman to be kind of Juan Yepes of last year in that DH role from the left side for the Cardinals' offense to reach kind of what they're hoping to get to this year. And think about the value that that would bring to your team, whether it's in trade value next offseason or just like in general having those left-handed hitters. At that point, you'd have, hopefully, Lars Newbar as an established left-handed hitter that's cost-controlled for years to come. Nolan Gorman. You'd have Alec Burleson. Who am I missing? There's one other uh, left-handed hitter. Donovan? Brendan Donovan, that yeah. that is a left-handed hitter as well. That's four guys. When was the last time the Cardinals had four lefties that they could reliably count upon on a day-to-day basis, especially four guys that were young and cost-controlled? I, I can't remember. 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line. Maybe you guys have a better memory of the last time that that happened. It's probably been at least a decade, I would imagine. Might have been early on when Wong was here. He had Wong, Marp. Adams at the time, those would have been the three. I don't know if there was a fourth one, but those are yeah. pro- that's probably when when Wong first got called up early on in his career. It was probably Wong, Carpenter, Alan and Adams. He was a righty. So, oh, was he? Uh, but those would be the three. Uh, that would I. That's the first one that came to my mind when you said the three lefties that you kind of rely upon. But Wong didn't have power. I mean, he had some, but it wasn't great. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while since we've been able to say that, and they need to prove it. It's going to take some time before we're at that level. But if if this ends up coming to fruition with Alec Burleson, that's that's what they could potentially have by the end of the year. In about fifteen minutes, we're talking to Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues. Blues back in action coming up this week, and want to get his thoughts on what the next couple of weeks mean for the Blues, especially with the trade deadline coming right around the corner. But next, we're going to tear apart this Eagles podcast here on One Hundred and One ESPN. 
We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, hey. I'm Brandon Kylie. Hey. hey. Talk to Chris Gerber, the voice of the blues coming up here in just a little bit. Guys, let's got, dive into some NFL quick hitters. I'm mad. I'm going to be totally honest with you. I'm mad today. Who upset you, buddy? Because T-Bone and I are here for you. Who do we need to, who do we need to uh, discuss? Fix well, a gentleman. I almost said address. Named Elliot Shore Parks. S-H-O-R-R. He already sounds like a jerk. Hyphen Parks. He already sounds like a jerk. Let's go ahead and pull down this bed for just a second, oh, T-Bone. We have to pull down the bed to hear this? Well, it's a very brief piece of a podcast that he did. we have a eulogy for him? With The Athletic. Here was uh, the question that he posed. He doesn't work for The Athletic. He was just on their I podcast. I say, we found our new Because apparently he's successful. <laughs> Here was the question that he posed you are too. on their podcast. If the Eagles win the Super Bowl, what's the argument for taking Patrick Mahomes over Jalen Hurts moving forward? Like, if you're starting a team, what's the argument? Can I hear that again? Let me make sure that I understand yeah, but, what pop, he just pop said. Pop down the bed, Tanner, please. Let's hear this one more time. Elliot Shore Parks, who has 115,000 followers oh, on Twitter, he says this nonsense. If the Eagles win the Super Bowl, what's the argument for taking Patrick Mahomes over Jalen Hurts moving forward? Like, if you're starting a team, what's the argument? Did he get crickets after that question? Apparently, they entertained it. Oh, that's interesting. Why does every game have to be a referendum on quarterbacks now? This is what I don't understand. Hey, Jalen, something to talk about. Yeah, I get it. He's successful, so obviously it's a great question. What I don't understand is we did this with Daniel Jones. He beats the Vikings, and now he's the franchise quarterback. He loses to the Eagles, and he's no good anymore. No, he's the same guy that he was. If Joe Burrow beat Patrick Mahomes, well, then Joe Bur- Burrow is now the GOAT, and Patrick Mahomes is a failure. Josh Allen, well, he's failed. He's not good anymore. What are we doing, guys? We can have a little bit, um, a modicum of context here with some of these players. Jalen Hurts is not in any way, shape, or form a better quarterback than Patrick Mahomes. He's a better runner. That's it. He's not a better quarterback than Patrick Mahomes. And that should not be considered shade against Jalen Hurts. Nobody playing right now in the NFL is a better quarterback than Patrick Mahomes. Jalen Hurts isn't even in the same tier. The only guy that I'm willing to entertain in that regard is Joe Burrow. Alex, what? why do we continue to do this? Why is this the way that we use the analysis coming off of a, a big game is that it has to be a referendum on every individual that's taking place. I, I think it's just because the, the big stage of the, of the Super Bowl, where if you get to the Super Bowl, well, you're one of the greats and that's how we're going to label it as. But the problem is getting to the Super Bowl and what would this be the first time in his three years as an NFL quarterback, it'd be three years for mm-hmm. Jalen Hurts, right? The problem is when that happens, it's immediately you jump on the the bandwagon of, oh, well, he must be great because he got there in three years. The difference between Jalen Hurts as Patrick Mahomes is Patrick Mahomes got there quickly also, but he also won it. And then he went back and he went back and he went back. So I'm with you. I don't understand why we have to jump on this so quick when it comes to a quarterback and the immediate success. A lot of these guys, you don't find out who they are until later in their career. Also, like Jalen Hurts is maybe the sixth or seventh best quarterback in the league. And that's a, a hell of a statement, a testament to what he's become. J- Jalen Hurts 
probably isn't in the Super Bowl if not for the acquisition of A.J. Brown in the offseason. Agreed. Or if he's in the NFC. Yeah. In the AFC, you mean? Or, yeah, sorry. And and again, none of this should be considered a slight against Hurts. And this is the conversation that we have to have. It, ha- it has to slant negatively when people throw out this nonsense, this stupid take bait that we have to put out there. I, I just... I think that some of the analysis, especially nationally, has become so low-hanging fruit that it's just always rings with seven Zs at the end of it, or you're a failure. It doesn't have to be this way, guys. We can do better. Are you guys thinking what I'm thinking? Radio wars with this guy right now. Well, this guy couldn't hold up with us. Amen to that. If these are the topics that he's throwing out there, he's he's scraping at the bottom of the barrel. Coming and maybe up this next. guy's great at his job, and that's what's so frustrating. He's like, I have no idea. I've never heard of this guy before this moment. And that's not to suggest that he's bad. I just, I'm not an Eagles fan, so Coming I don't up next, why Kyrou's going to be better than Brett Hull. Oh, we could make the argument for that one. I already did, buddy. It didn't go over well. <laughs> I just think it's silly. <laughs> I, I think it is so silly that every game is a referendum on individual players. Anyway. You feel better now, man? Yeah, I'm sorry. I needed that. I'll DM him. Fine, we'll get him on. No, we don't need to do that. I don't want him on the show. Uh, Final thing here. Guys, ESPN put out their final predictions for the Super Bowl. They have, for their football power index, it's a 51% chance that the Eagles win. This is basically a 50-50 game in their expectation. Their, Their experts, though... 45 of them picked the Eagles, 26 of them picked the Chiefs. Who do you think's the better team going into this game? Like, forget the matchup, forget anything like that. Like, just if you were talking about this year, you watch football all year, Alex. Who's the team that you think's better going into the Super Bowl? Philadelphia. Philadelphia, because they've got the weapons on offense that I think are better than Kansas City. Kansas City's got the up, upgrade over uh, Hertz and Goddard with Kelsey and Mahomes. But the defense for Philadelphia is better, and I think the running game is much better than Kansas City, at least on paper going into this game. So Philadelphia is the better team. Yeah, I, I think on paper Philadelphia is the better team. I I kind of agree with what Alex said. You know, I look at that offense. I, I think they're schematically great. I mean, Jalen yeah. Hurts, they can run the ball with him. They've got the running game, as you said. They've got the wide receiver weapons. Defensively, they're good. They've got a great offensive line. So I think on paper, they're the be- they're, they're the better team, in yeah. my opinion. I think so as well. I think they're more complete. I think that I'm very curious to see how Jalen Hurts looks in this game. And this is not me trying to push him down. I don't think he's played well so far in the postseason. And I don't think he's needed to because his team has gotten up by so much that they just rely heavily on the running game. And the offensive line has been great for them. And the reason I've got an eye on that is because he's coming back from that shoulder injury. If it wasn't for that, I wouldn't care. I would just say, okay, it's two random games. We've seen him play well all season long. But the shoulder issue does seem to be a bit of an, a, a problem for him that he's trying to fight through right now. If they can't throw in this game against Steve Spagnolo in that defense, I do think it changes things uh, for them offensively. It changes some of what they're able to do. So I think the, the Eagles are better. They're more complete. If Jalen Hurts' injury is more significant than what they've let on and it actually matters in this game as opposed to what it has in the first two, I think that will be the thing that ends up swaying this in the favor of the Chiefs. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we got to talk about LeBron James. Big night for him last night. Where does this rank among the most unbreakable records in sports? I think it's pretty high up there at this point. We'll get into that coming up at 145. But next, Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues here on 101 ESPN. 
We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie, hoping to be joined by Chris Kerber, the voice of the blues momentarily. But before we do, uh, Alex, I, I think there is a conversation that we've been having that we can probably put a nix on at this point. Oh, yeah. So according to multiple reports, Doug Armstrong is in Europe on a scouting trip. He's not expected back for another week beyond today. That would seem to suggest that he doesn't see anything imminent in terms of signing any of the pending free agents ahead of this year's trade deadline. Now it's, it's still possible Mm -hmm. that he gets back and he's had these conversations and all they got to do is sign the dotted line. But again, that wouldn't happen until next week. How do you feel about that conversation now? Like, do do you think that it is, it is fair for us to say it's unlikely that any of the pending free agents are going to be signing a, a extension prior to the deadline. Yeah, I would agree with that. Although, so Ryan Miller, who's the assistant general manager in the hockey operations side, who's right underneath Doug Armstrong, he's one of those guys that has negotiated contracts also and can do that, of course, making phone calls to Doug Armstrong. But you just feel like it would be difficult to get that done if he's in Europe. Now, crazier things have happened, and maybe it is something where they've already had the conversations before the break, and they said, we'll sign it once we get back. Go enjoy your vacation. But for how unique those contract extensions would be with, let's say, an O'Reilly, uh, I don't believe Ivan Barbashev would be getting one. I don't believe Vladimir Tarasenko would be getting one. Mikola, he's, a rest- or no, he's unrestricted, so mm-hmm. that one maybe, and Nolachari maybe, It just seems like that if it were to be done, it would have been done already. You're not going to wait until the guys get back to practice Thursday and Friday and sign on the dotted lines for how simple it would be. You would have just signed that before the break and then said, let's get get on with it. So I I still believe maybe you get one of them, but I'm pretty close to being ready to just nix it because by now. Doug's going to just sit there and say, let's see what we can get for all of these guys. I think Doug wants to change the complexion of the team. I think think you have to change the complexion of the team. Totally agree. And that's not to suggest that if you bring back Nolachari on a two-year deal worth, you know, two and a half, three million bucks, that you would not be able to change the complexion of the team. You could. That's not hindering your ability to go out there and make significant moves in the offseason. But I, I think that we've seen this year, the Blues as currently assembled aren't good enough. And that includes the compete level of the team that includes the skill level of the team earlier today we talked with um craig button and he said they don't have enough speed they don't have the right defense well that's basically saying they don't have the roster you you don't have the squad to be able to compete any longer this window of blues hockey has officially come to an end it has closed so i think he's going to go into the offseason and say let's completely remake this team we're remaking it around Braden shin brandon saw jordan Cairo, robert thomas pavel buchnevich And then on the blue line, we're going to pick probably our favorite three guys. Pick whoever that you deem that to be. And then we're going to ride this thing out with Jordan Bennington, and that's going to be our squad moving forward. But other than those, I guess that would have been 10 players that I just mentioned. The rest of the roster could be completely overhauled by next year. You'd throw um, probably a guy like Jake Neighbors in there as well. Yeah, This team needs more glue guys. They don't have that. Like They, for whatever reason, have not meshed this season, and it's very evident on the ice that they have not played 
well together as a group. Kind of what we've seen in the past where the team just gets along so well, they mesh so well. And I'm not saying that there's problems in the locker room. What I'm saying is they just... It doesn't seem to be a unit. And if you're Doug Armstrong, you're saying, how do we go get more glue guys that make this a unit? That's why I could see them bringing back Nola Chari, even if he doesn't get traded. I could see them finding a way to bring back Ryan O'Reilly, even if he gets traded. But for Doug, now I would say you're at the point where everybody is available. Because if a team wants somebody, we need to get assets to make this so that we can find guys in the offseason that mesh better as a group. You know what your core is, but where's the glue that keeps that foundation together? That's what Doug's going to have to figure out. And you can't figure that out at the trade deadline because nobody's trading glue guys. Those are available in the offseason. Well, that's why I mean, we talked again earlier today. If you missed any of our conversation, by the way, with Craig Button, I think it's well worth your time. Check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, the free 101 ESPN app. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. He mentioned Ivan Barbashev. He thinks is one of the guys that's going to have a ton of value on the market Absolutely. because he can be that glue guy for another team. And he's cheap. And if you like what he brings to the table, you can re-sign him in the offseason if you're the team that decides to go ahead and bring him into your system. Lekkonen was one of the biggest under-the-radar moves last year by the Colorado Avalanche, and it wasn't one that made a lot of headlines, and a lot of people called it an overpay at the time. They needed Lekkonen to go on that run in the in the postseason, in the Stanley Cup playoffs last year. 14 points in 20 games for them. He was a huge piece to that Stanley Cup run, and he's the kind of player that they've been missing in previous seasons. Barbie can be that guy. He has been that guy here in St. Louis, frankly, for for the vast majority of his career. And do you want him back? Sure, but you're getting tight against the cap, and these are the kinds of decisions that you have to make. I think he's going to end up bringing back more than most of us locally are expecting right now. Well, and also to to what Craig told us, let's remember that trade of Lekkonen got a second round draft pick. Now it was I totally to, forgot that they got a prospect. It was the 2024 well. draft, so mind you, it wasn't this year's draft. It was two years from now mm-hmm. draft. But yeah, they got a draft pick that was a first round pick, or a player that was a first round pick. That's essentially, as GMs look at it, a first-round pick and a second-round pick, however you want to go about it. And Barbashev is very similar to Lekkonen. What's interesting about that trade was they paid a lot because Lekkonen was a restricted free agent. So Colorado had control of him. This team's going to be trading for an unrestricted free agent to probably jump on the opportunity to get a uh, negotiation with him before offseason. And you got this for the playoffs right around the same age. Barbashev has shown to be more of a higher level goal scorer than what Lekkonen was. And both are defensively sound when it comes to postseason play. I, I, I agree with you. People look at Barbashev and say, well, he's just going to get a draft pick. He might. But he's also going to potentially get you a prospect. Might be a B-level prospect or a C-level prospect, but he's going to get you something that you didn't expect to be in that trade because there will be teams fighting over Ivan Barbashev. And it's Justin Barron uh, that they got, the, the prospect that I genuinely forgot that they got in that deal as well, the Canadians, in, in return for Lekkonen. Um He's a guy that was like basically NHL ready. This year he's played already 15 games at the NHL level. He's still a little ways off. He's not a like fully he's formed what, 21, product. 22 years old. Yeah, he's 21 years old. So that's the kind of prospect that you might be able to get in return. Maybe it's a third round pick and a better prospect than we expected. And so the pick capital isn't quite there, but you make up for that by the prospect that is close to NHL ready. And what that does, Alex, is if you got like 
say it's a B minus type of a prospect that can come in and you feel like next year can be a third pairing defenseman for you or can be a third line winger or something like that, right? That they can come in and immediately be somebody that contributes. What that does is it just eases the money that you would otherwise have to spend. Maybe they're the one that replaces what you would have had with Scandella on that third pairing defense. And instead of paying three and a half million dollars for that player, you're paying him a million. It's two and a half million dollars that you can spend elsewhere that ends up being surplus value. So that's that's the kind of thing that a move like that can do for a team like the Blues. For Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Hopefully we'll talk with Curbs either tomorrow or later on this week. But coming up next, we'll hit the BK and Ferrario Rewind with the biggest news in all of sports yesterday. LeBron James just broke a record that might never be broken again. And he's lived up to every expectation as a teenager that was expected to be the next great player. Is Connor Bedard the next to do that? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. That's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on a 101 ESPN. Last night was a special viewing experience. If you're a basketball fan, if you're just a sports fan. Uh, here we go with Mizzou again. No, no, no. That was not a fun watching experience for the most part. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I kind of regret watching the beginning of that game. <laughs> Nothing about that was enjoyable. No, I'm talking about LeBron James breaking Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's record for most regular season points in NBA history. Alex, this was a record I didn't think we were ever going to see broken, to be totally honest with you. Like, I, I didn't think LeBron would get here. I, I didn't think anybody would be able to get there. It's a record that has stood the test of time since 19, what, 89? I mean, you just don't see stuff like this broken. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's record was one of those that is kind of like the most consecutive starts in Major League Baseball or um, the Nolan Ryan strikeouts record. Like the, the hitting streak for uh, what's Dima- his face? DiMaggio. DiMaggio. Like you, you just, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. You, you're never going to see that again. And so for LeBron to be at the level that he's been at now for 20 years in the NBA, where he is 38 years old, he's played more minutes than anybody ever, and he's averaging for the second straight year 30 points per game for the Lakers. It's just remarkable. And so I, I think the biggest thing that I took away from last night is just so often we get lost in the conversation of LeBron versus blank, whether you're a Michael guy, whether you're somebody or gore or, or girl or somebody that goes with the rings and you're the, the Bill Russell supporter. Maybe you're a magic support, whoever your guy is, the, the LeBron versus arguments kind of come to the forefront. I think it loses sight of the, the beauty of the type of game that he plays. I would say when we discuss LeBron James after his career, his scoring is like the third or fourth thing that you bring up. And now he's the all-time leading scorer in the history of the league. Just remarkable to be able to see that. You'll never get away from the championship talk because that's what everybody goes to, especially when it comes to basketball. I mean, I was the guy for the longest time that sat there and said, well, Jordan's better. Look at the championships, which is fine. It is. But I've gotten past that now because you just have to respect an individual and what he does. And longevity to me is 
very important when it comes to being a professional athlete. How many times do we see guys who are great for a couple of years and then fizzle out? Remember uh, Lynn Sanity, Jeremy Lynn? Like that was the next coming of the Steve Nash point guards, and then it fizzles away. LeBron James never did that, and he always has stayed competitive. His teams have stayed competitive, although the Lakers have started to fumble over these last few years. Exactly. But LeBron James has always been the best player on the court, and I think that's impressive to say and to accomplish something like this. Now, some records can be broken that seem impossible because the game changes. We were talking about this before, right? Three-pointers get involved, and that wasn't around when Kareem uh, Abdul-Jabbar accomplished what he did, which is also very impressive. But you have to enjoy what LeBron James did, and looking at it now, the fact that he has stayed competitive this long makes it more enjoyable for me. Since his second season in the NBA, sorry, Tanner, to cut you off here. Since his second season in the NBA, every single season in his career after that, 19 years, he has averaged at least 25 points and at least six assists per game. Every single season. Like the bare minimum then, that you can expect out of LeBron James and then is throw 25 the and six. And if you throw in rebounds as well, he's had at least six rebounds in every other season. <laughs> I mean, that's impressive. 20, 25, 6, and 6 is you can write it in stone. If you have LeBron James on your team, he's going to be giving you that every single night. To do that for 20 years in the NBA is literally unprecedented. And look at the teams that he was on to still do that with. The early years of the Cavaliers, then you go to the Miami Heat, then you go back to the Cavaliers, and then you go to the Lakers. Those are very different teams that you were a part of and, and still doing that. played at least 60 games, because I know this is something that a lot of people will, will talk down upon of the current NBA. For good reason, I get it. The rest, all that stuff, it, it gets frustrating at times. But LeBron has played at least 62 games in 16 of his 20 NBA seasons. Jeez. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, and the thing for me is, it, it, in not just that longevity, but when you think of the style that he plays, because, yes, there is three-point shooting. He's never really been known as a sharp shooter, though. He He's more known for that slashing power th- uh, small four that's going to get into the paint. And you see the, just the contact that he takes. I mean, you've heard people say before, you know, there should be more fouls called on LeBron James or against LeBron James because the way he plays, just officials give him more leeway because he just is so down. I mean, you saw it last night. I mean, he was get just, he said, you know what? I'm going to go for the record. And what do you do? He wasn't taking threes. He'd get the ball and he would just attack the paint constantly. And good luck stopping him when LeBron James gets ahead of steam. That's what's so impressive. And yes, he's dealt with injuries and he's kind of been out more games later on in his career. You can expect that. But the fact that he's been able to do it for 20 plus years playing that way is really impressive. Absolutely. Amazing. I hope that they're able to make the playoffs so we can see them in the postseason this year. That team is just. What's wild, too, is you got at least three more years of LeBron James in the NBA. So that scoring is just going to continue to go up. play at least a few more years. Uh, You don't hear him say that a whole lot, but for him to be able to say that publicly, I I appreciated that. I would say one other thing on LeBron. We'll get out of here after this. Um, I, I thought last night you saw the real version of LeBron James. I think LeBron sometimes puts on this front of who he wants people to think that he is. I thought he actually kind of internalized what was happening yesterday. That felt like LeBron James showed us the human side of LeBron. He was he there was, were real tears yeah, that he were was coming crying. down his face. When Jabbar was at center court or half court and they were doing the ceremony, like there were tears coming down his face. And that was that was that was humbling a little bit to see that because, yeah, you you know LeBron James as the attacker. You know LeBron James as, like, the machine on the court, but you don't see the vulnerable side it's of him. It's rare that you see that. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty cool last night as well. Looking forward to hearing BT and Anthony Stalter coming up on the fast lane. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. right here on 101 ESPN.
You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.